Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast, your number one source for everything holistic health. Listen to guest interviews with top doctors and health experts and discover cutting-edge solutions for living your healthiest, longest, and most fulfilling life. There's never been a better time to become healthier, happier, and more alive. And now your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and cancer health researcher and educator, Nathan Crane. Cyrus, what's up, my brother? How you doing, my man? So good to be with you here. Did you, uh, did you get your workout in this morning? What kind of a question is that? I get my workout in every morning. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a religion, just like it is for you. Dude, you're shredded. Uh, people who don't know need to go to your Instagram. And uh, you haven't been posting much lately. Of your, you're just ripped, dude. You got to post some more, uh, <laughs> some more ripped photos of you on Instagram. Well, here's one of the things that I've learned about myself over the course of time is that like I don't actually enjoy taking photos of myself and putting them on social media. So the photos that you see usually come from other people that end up getting posted on there, which is which is totally cool. But um, uh, what I love about this, uh, you know, like in general, people think, oh, well, you're eating a plant-based diet. You can't, you can't get strong, you know, plant-based diet. You can't get ripped. You can't, you know, you can't grow muscle eating a plant-based diet. And like you and I both know that that is a complete fallacy in a thousand right. different ways. Right. So when you and I have had a chance to work out together, I mean, I like to think of myself as being strong, but then I, you know, started working out with you and I was like, oh, wow, you're like, you're like He-Man strong. So you're like different levels strong, but it's, it's so cool to be around somebody who cares about athletics as much as I do, who really like wants it. And every day wakes up and it's like, what am I going to do today? How am I going to push myself? How am I going to get to the next level? So like, I think you and I are brothers from another mother in that respect. Absolutely. I mean, what's cool is we both, uh, we both do CrossFit and, uh, in CrossFit, for those who don't know, it's, it's a sport uh, where you do everything. I mean, running, you do dumbbells, you do Olympic weightlifting, you do gymnastics, um, you do high intensity interval training, you do biking, swimming, you name it. And it's, it's one of the things I fell in love with it, uh, when I turned 30, so it's five years ago, uh, at the time we're recording this. And I, I just like, I wasn't doing anything really active at that time. I was running a little bit, trail running. And before that, like I would do a little bit of yoga and I do a little bit of, um, I'd go to the gym from time to time and lift some weights, but like I never lifted heavy. I never built a strong foundation or a base. I never like squatted more than like 185. And the one time I did try squatting more than that um, in my early 20s, I like almost like broke my back or something. So I had no idea what I was doing. Probably didn't have the yeah. mobility, the flexibility, anything. And uh, I like couldn't walk right for like a year. So I like never squatted again. I thought it was terrible for you. It was bad for you. All these misconceptions so many people have about weightlifting and stuff. Yeah. And I didn't have the motivation back then to like just go to a regular gym and like do curls in front of the mirror. Like it just was never, you know, just physical looks like were never that motivating enough for me. And so it wasn't until like I found CrossFit at 30 and I was just like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so yeah. much fun. You'll never get bored. You're always learning new things. You're hitting every energy system of the body, right? You're building strength, endurance, flexibility, mobility. You know, you're always learning something new. You're with a cool community of people. Um, and so I just got hooked. And then when we connected, it was like, dude, we were on the same page with it. And, uh, and yeah, with probably. such a similar, um, 
uh, background around like our studies and research around health where you living with type one diabetes for a very long time and helping, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world dealing with type uh, with diabetes and me uh, helping, you know, researching around cancer and helping people with cancer. And then it's like, we come together and share ideas and it's like, oh, wow, almost the exact same things that you're teaching for diabetes and what the research shows uh, is the same things I've been learning and teaching for helping people with cancer. And uh, it was right. just, you know, so fascinating. So why don't you talk a little bit about your, um, you know, when you were first diagnosed with type one diabetes, uh, how old were you? So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 22. So I was a senior in college. I was going to Stanford University and I was studying mechanical engineering and I was just trying to, you know, I had senioritis. It was my, I was just approaching the second semester or I guess it would be like the, I was in the middle of the second quarter and I had already decided that like, I didn't really care about school that much. I just wanted to like move on with my life and, you know, enter the real world. So I remember studying for finals. Uh, and I was studying thermodynamics, which is not a fun subject. And I, I mean, it requires a lot of brain power in order to figure out what the heck is going on. And uh, as I was trying to, you know, make sense of this problem set, I remember pulling my my head up from the problem set and taking a, a thought for myself. And I was like, man, I'm pretty thirsty. So I went and I grabbed a glass of water and I drank the whole thing, put it down and I continued working. And then three minutes later, I was like, I think I'm thirstier. That's weird. And then I drank another glass of water, put it down. And then this, mm. this cycle kept on happening over and over and over again. And then at a certain point, I was like, huh, I wonder if I'm electrolyte depleted. Maybe I should go get some Gatorade. So I got some Gatorade and I started drinking that. Got thirstier, got thirstier, got thirstier. And this was happening over the course of like three to four to five, six hours. And I was taking on so much fluid at that time that uh, I ended up going to the bathroom and urinating every half an hour, just like clockwork. I mean, and it was, you know, a lot of, you know, I was flushing a lot of fluids. So um, the cycle that I got myself into was that I was drinking a lot of fluid. I was urinating a lot of fluid. And then as a result of that, I was actually depleting electrolytes. So that means that when I went to sleep, I would be asleep for like an hour. And you know, you know, when you, um, get like a, a calf cramp in the middle of the night and it's like extremely painful. And then you have to like wake up all of a sudden and try and like manipulate your legs such that you can relieve the tension in your calf and oh, that's and, the worst you know, I've, had, I've had it in like hamstrings like um not <sighs> often not i mean I, once or twice ever in my life that have like woken me up uh, yeah. mostly after like really really intense long training periods or something like that and then the hamstring and it's like you can't it's it is one of the worst things ever yeah, exactly. Because a hamstring is such a large muscle. Uh, the hamstring can be extremely painful when that happens. So in this moment, you know, we're in 2002, I fall asleep. I'm electrolyte depleted. I don't know that this is happening to me. Mm. My calf and my left leg cramps up. So I try and relieve the tension in my calf, my left, uh, in my left leg, and then right hamstring cramps up and then left butt cheek cramps up and then my abdomen cramps up. And before I know it, there were moments where I was lying in bed and I was in what felt like full body rigor mortis. And I was like, this is unbelievable because nothing I could do would actually relieve that tension. So I finally picked up the phone and I called my sister and she's a doctor of osteopathy, family practice, and she's brilliant. And I explained my symptomology to her and she started crying. She's a very, very cool cucumber and under normal circumstances, nothing phases her. Uh, I explained my symptomology to her and she started crying and she said, Cyrus, whatever you are doing, it, drop it, go straight to the health center right now. Cause you have type one diabetes. 
And I was like, diabetes? What are you talking about? I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm normal weight. I exercise. I don't eat a bunch of cake. And she's like, I don't have time to explain. Just go. And at that time in my life, I didn't know anything about human health. I just, I knew one thing. I, I had an association, which was that diabetes affected old people who ate candy and cakes. Mm. And I was neither of the two. So I was like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. So I go straight to the health center. I check into the health center. Uh, the nurse checks me in. She checks my blood glucose. She has to take a finger stick, walk into another room, put it into a blood glucose meter and come back. She comes back maybe three minutes later or so. I'm passed out. She knocks on the door. She walks on the door and I literally wake up and I'm like, okay, where am I? All right. I'm in the doctor's office. Okay. How did I get here? Oh, okay, cool. I walked myself here. Okay. Who is she? Okay. She's a nurse. And I had to like piece together this, 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 you know, confusing situation. And she looks at me and she has like a, a kind of ghostly look on her face. And she goes, how did you get here? And I was like, I walked. And she's like, we got to get you to the ER right now. And I was like, could somebody please explain to me what the heck is going on? Cause I don't understand. And she said, your blood glucose is higher than 600 right now. And it's supposed to be effectively about hundred between 80 and 130. That's the target range. So your blood glucose is six times higher than it's supposed to be right now. And this is a telltale sign that you have type one diabetes. So we got to get you to the ER and we got to get you there now. So they take me over to the ER. They check me in. I'm there for the next 24 hours while under supervision from that team of doctors, they give me an IV saline in one arm, and then they give me drip irrigation of insulin and they start to use insulin, you know, in very small quantities to try and lower my blood glucose. Now, the kicker is that while I was there, the team of doctors that had been assigned to my case recognized that not only was I developing or had I developed type 1 diabetes, and this was a, an emergency situation called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, but secondarily, I had two other autoimmune conditions that had not been officially diagnosed until that moment. They said, Cyrus, you have three autoimmune conditions. Number one, you have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Number two, you have alopecia universalis, which is just a fancy way of saying hair loss. It's an autoimmune condition that affects your hair follicles and gets you to lose your hair. And then number three, you have type one diabetes. We have never seen somebody with this combination, what's referred to as a polyglandular autoimmune syndrome. We've never seen anybody with this combination of autoimmune diseases. Can we talk about you at our next huddle? Can we study you? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, absolutely. You can talk about me, but here's the thing. You're not giving me any confidence that you know what to do. And they were like, yeah, here's the thing. We don't know what to do. We're just going to, we're just going to try and help you get through this, you know, this, this next 24 hour period. Wow. So that started the journey of me being discharged from the hospital with a blood glucose meter, test strips, syringes, two types of insulin, a carbohydrate counting guide, a completely different, I, I had so much fear in me that I had, that I did this to myself that I was living a lifestyle that was actually just making me more unhealthy and it was going to get worse and worse and worse over the course of time. And three autoimmune conditions would turn into five, would turn into eight, would turn into 20 down the road. And, uh, you know, here I am as a 22 year old guy, just trying to live my life. And I turned into a chronic disease patient overnight. Not fun. Definitely not fun. So you had to be pretty frightened, uh, when they told you all this and didn't really know what to do. Right. I was, I was terrified. I was terrified because anytime you're diagnosed with a, a chronic disease, 
and you go from being unaware to aware, that moment of realization can hit you like a ton of bricks, right? It could be diabetes. It could be heart disease. It could be cancer. It could be an autoimmune disease. It could be the beginnings of dementia slash Alzheimer's, fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, you name it. Any of these conditions, like these are not fun conditions to have or to be diagnosed with. And so here I am, a 22-year-old guy who's normal weight, athletic, active on a daily basis, thinking that I eat a quote-unquote healthy diet, or at least at that time I was like, oh, you know, I eat healthy. Um, and um, despite all of that, I get diagnosed with not one, not two, but three autoimmune diseases. And I was like, this doesn't even make any sense. There's no autoimmunity in my family. How is this possible? Like maybe I just got dealt a bad genetic card, but then I look back at my parents and I look back at their parents and their parents and so on and so forth. And it's like type one diabetes is nowhere to be found. Hashimoto's hypothyroidism is nowhere to be found. What the heck? Right. And so that's why there were a lot of questions and there were effectively zero answers. So staying on kind of the mindset for a little bit, because I think this is really important for anyone who is diagnosed with any chronic condition. Uh, a lot of the cancer patients that I work with, for example, you know, there's a, there's a really strong separation between people who I have met and uh, had deep conversations and interviews with who cancer has, e has either completely changed their life for the better. You often hear um, people say it was a wake-up call. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And we can get into the whys behind that. Some people... The opposite of that is that's, that's it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I can't even understand how it's a good thing, right? This is terrible. Uh, this is, you, you get thrown into depression, anxiety, constant fear. And then the conventional medical approach is, hey, we need to attack this, kill it, destroy it, get it out of you as quick as possible. Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. Dot com. All right, let's get back to the show. And so this is the, you know, the, the dichotomy that happens in mindset. And people don't get to the point of this was a wake-up call. This was the best thing that ever happened to me. This helped me deepen my relationships. This helped me take a hard look at my life. This helped me you know, stop doing the stressful work I was doing or get out of the abusive relationship I was in or change my diet and lifestyle so I feel so much better now. That's the wake-up call side. The, the other side, which is you know, we become a victim is, you know, this, this is, this happened to me and, or I did this to myself or somebody else did this to me, or I don't know what the hell happened or where the hell this came from, but, uh, it's terrible. My life is over. I can't do anything now. It's going to get worse. Right. Like you said, three diseases, then five, then eight, then I'm going to die. Right. And if you stay in that negative perpetual cycle of, of basically mental negativity, things do actually get worse, not only mentally, emotionally, but physically, because we know how deeply connected our mind and thinking is to our physiology, to our nervous system. So for you, obviously you left there in fear. You left there not quite knowing what to do or what the hell just happened or where do you go from here, right? But 
How long did it take you to get to a shift in your mindset to like, hey, I'm going to figure this thing out and actually do something about it? How long, what did that period look like for you and, and how did you get there and what was your mindset like? Okay, I'm going to give you uh, two answers to that question. The first answer is how long did it take me to start making changes to my lifestyle uh, so that I could uh, maybe halt the progression of any other autoimmune diseases and also deal with the three autoimmune diseases that I already had developed. The answer is within 24 hours. I didn't have a choice. I had no choice, right? I'm eating in a dormitory setting, right? We had these eating clubs at Stanford. It's a cafeteria and the, you know, there's relatively high quality food, but you don't really have control over what you're being fed. But the doctors at that time did tell me that the, the way that I could control my blood glucose and way that I could prevent myself from using more and more insulin over the course of time was to eat a low carbohydrate diet, low carbohydrate, was, high fat, high protein, low carbohydrate, high fat, high protein. You nailed so, it. So right? essentially ketogenic diet is what they're telling you. Yeah. But they didn't back in 2002, people weren't using the word ketogenic, right? The it only, was, it was Atkins term. Or it was just it was Atkins. Fat or, yep. Atkins. Yep. Exactly. But even then they, they didn't use those words. They right. basically said, uh, they basically drilled into my head. They said, carbohydrates are bad for you. Don't eat carbohydrates. And when, you know, and, and actually what they said is don't eat carbs. Here's this book that tells you how many carbs are in each of the foods that you're eating. And their recommendation was try and limit your intake of all carbs, whether they come from breads and cereals and pastas and granolas and, you know, rice and crackers and more refined versions of carbohydrate, or whether they came from fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains. Okay. They grouped there them all no together and said they were all bad for you. Exactly. All carbohydrates are bad for me. And so I was like, okay, great. I should probably not eat paper as well. I probably shouldn't eat wood as well because there's carbohydrate in those foods as well. Right. So in reality, that was the first mistake. The, the first mistake that the medical institution had imparted to me was that all carbs are equal. All carbohydrate energy is treated the same way inside of the metabolic machine in which you live. And as a result of that, I went into this mindset of, okay, cool. I don't really know that much about biology, but what I do know is what my doctors told me, which is that I should try and avoid carbohydrate as much as possible. So that means more white meat, more red meat, more dairy products, more chicken, more fish, uh, eggs, processed meats are fine because they don't contain carbohydrate, right? Huge mistake, huge mistake. But, uh, you know, olive oil, peanut butter, turkey burgers, any of these foods is totally fine, except try and avoid the fruits, the legumes, the potatoes, the rice, the beans, the whole grains, the quinoas, the brown rice, all of that stuff. Avoid that. And then, of course, don't drink sugar-sweetened beverages. Don't have refined white bread and uh, white pasta at the same time. And I was like, okay, great. This seems like a relatively easy prescription. I'm a 22-year-old guy. You don't really have to convince a 22-year-old guy to eat more meat. You know, most of the time the answer is like, okay, great. If that's my prescription, that's the greatest prescription I've ever heard of. I'll do it. No problem. So I did that. Right. And it didn't take me long to answer your question. How long did it take me to adopt this philosophy? The answer was immediately because I wanted to make sure that I was doing whatever I possibly could in order to keep myself in a healthy state or to regain the health that I had lost. So they, uh, in that circumstance, they, they quote unquote, gave you, um, somewhat of a solution eat this way, don't eat this way, 
you'll reduce your insulin needs and this will keep you fairly stable, right? Like that was, so, so you had, you know, some information and some sense of like, okay, this is what I'm being told to do. So I better do this. Right. Um, exactly. So, right. so it makes sense that you were able to just, okay, here we go. Let's do it. Of course. I mean, you know, who wouldn't make those changes right away, especially with what you just went through and, you know, almost knocking on death's door, you know, 24 hours before. Exactly. Right. And, you know, I consider myself to be the type of person, I think you and I have a very similar personality in this respect where, you know, you're dealt with adversity and uh, rather than playing the woe is me, let me, uh, you know, get depressed about this and spend a lot of time thinking about it and really like get down on myself. Instead, I took the opposite mentality of like, all right, there's a problem. I don't know what the solution to the problem is, but I got to start trying something. Right. And I'm not going to spend too much of my mental or emotional or physical energy, uh, you know, getting down on myself. Instead, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to learn about it. And I'm just going to start to make the changes that seem to be, you know, guided by the most scientific evidence. So again, I, so I call it solution oriented mindset. And I didn't really, truly, I mean, I think I probably had some of that most of my life, but I don't think I really truly like cultivated and developed that and made that a part of who I am until like my early twenties and really having some great mentors in my life, learning to meditate, learning to realize there is a solution to every problem and everything's possible. Like, I mean, one of my mentors, that's what he used to say all the time, everything is possible. And we would go in and like really philosophically talk about what does that actually mean? It wasn't like a surface level kind of motivational thing. It was like, let's look at this from a universal, you know, creation kind of aspect, you know, scientific, like, you know, we would go deep into that, just that statement right there, everything is possible. And so I started really ingraining that like early twenties. Um, when did you, like looking back at your childhood, did you have a childhood where you, you kind of had that solution oriented mindset already was your parents. Like when did you kind of develop that for yourself? How did you develop that for yourself? That's a great question. Uh, I think the answer is uh, I was born with it. And that may sound like a strange thing to say, but from a very young age, uh, I was always the type of person who would experience the, the way that I deal with adversity, whether it's, uh, adversity that comes from the outside world or whether it's voluntary adversity uh i can deal with adversity like relatively quickly and i can make i can try and i can sort of categorize what the problem is even if i don't have any solutions to the problem i can try and figure out what is the problem i can talk about it i can say okay cool this is an adversity that is now impacting my life uh let's develop let's try something let's do some experimentation and let's try and find a way out of it or try and find a way to improve my quality of life. Right. So that happened from a young age when I was like playing baseball and I would get injured. Right. I was playing baseball and all of a sudden, like, you know, I was covering home plate and uh, you know, a player would slide into me and uh, you know, cleats up and end up, you know, taking a chunk out of my knee. And then I had to go to the hospital and get stitches in my knee. The answer is, well, what am I going to do about that? I'm kind of immobile right now. The answer is, well, I'm going to go exercise other parts of my body and I'm going to go work on my throwing and I'm going to go become a better baseball player, even though I can't use my leg right now, right? Solution oriented. When I got to high school and I ended up taking the PSAT, the pre-SAT, and I did way worse than all of my other friends on it. And I was like, oh my God, like I scored 200 points worse than 
the rest of my friend group. What did I do? I told my mom, she got me a tutor. And then I took an SAT every single Saturday for the next nine months until I finally took the real SAT and I bumped my score up by 300 some odd points, wow. right? Again, solutions oriented because there's always going to be problems in life. And the way that I rationalize it is that life isn't about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to the things that are happening to you, right? It's all about your responses and what actions you're going to take in order to try and overcome adversity. Did you have good role models, good mentors, parents, whoever in your life when you were younger, like a little kid, like five, six, seven, eight, nine years old that you remember that kind of uh, shared some of these, uh, imparted some of this wisdom with you? Or do you have any of those memories? Yeah, I would say both of my parents are actually phenomenal role models in that respect. And both of them sort of taught me from a young age that, you know, there's just like you're saying, everything is possible. I, I literally remember having conversations with my mom at a young age where she was like, everything's possible. You just need a little bit of time. And, uh, you know, solutions always present themselves. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I can't, I can't get to the moon right now. She's like, everything's <laughs> possible. You'll be on the moon one day, you know? And I was like, man, that's crazy. Right. So, so I had both, you know, I had, I had great parenting growing up. And then I also, I think I just grew up in a, uh, I grew up in Palo Alto in the 1980s where there was a very, like, it was a very safe place to be. There were a lot of really in, uh, important intellectual discoveries that were happening at that time. The internet literally started in Palo Alto. You know, Steve Jobs was just like a couple blocks down the road. I didn't even know it at the time. And there was this feeling like, you know, innovation is on its way. And so I think when I get caught up, when I, because I grew up, got caught up in, in that environment, the answer is always, you know, there, there always is a solution. And if you don't know what the solution is right now, try something different or try harder and the solution will present itself. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so relevant, especially when we're talking about dealing with any kind of chronic disease for that, for that matter, or any goals, health goals in your life. On the other end of that extreme, you know, I was homeless at 15, right? Addicted to drugs and alcohol at 12 years old, in and out of jail, nearly dead by 18. Uh, and didn't have, you know, um, you know, my parents divorced early and had their own challenges they were dealing with. And so it was like totally lost, afraid, you know, um, challenged youth for me. And, and I barely made it through that, but I did. And had some great mentors, you know, at 17, 18 years old. And then again, at like 19, 20, 21 years old. And then have surrounded myself ever since with just people who inspire me and listening to, you know, cassettes and CDs of Wayne Dyer driving cross country, you know, programs like that, Wayne Dyer, Greg Braden, um, you know, think and grow rich, uh, you know, all kinds of personal development stuff. And so it doesn't really matter. My point is, doesn't really matter what your background is, whether you grew up with the most loving, caring, uh, wise parents, or you had a really challenged, diverse background, you can get to a place in your life where you can see solutions and opportunity in every challenge. And I've certainly been challenged big time uh, the last 17 years, multiple times. But it's, every time it's like, okay, this sucks. Uh, I don't want this but I'm dealing with it. So I know there's a solution. Let me find the best path forward. Okay. So let's go backwards to the time between the ages of 15 and 18, where you said that you had become homeless 
and that you were in and out of jail and seemingly lost in life. Uh, was your mindset at that time uh, not solutions oriented? Like take me backwards and tell me what was happening in your head at that time, because it doesn't sound like a very emotionally enjoyable experience. And I'm curious how that Nathan was different than the Nathan that you are today. Yeah, I think a lot of it was survival mindset. I think a lot of it was just honestly trying to survive. And at 15, 16, 17, 18, I was already, you know, involved with some uh, some pretty bad characters. And I was one of the bad characters, not their fault, uh, around a lot of drugs, uh, drinking every day, smoking every day, you know, running from the cops. Um, I think my mindset was... that was the life that I was supposed to live. Like I didn't really know anything different. And that might sound weird to some, but it was, you know, growing up really young, like watching MTV and, you know, getting into like gangster rap and, you know, seeing people, you know, lots of beautiful women and expensive cars and lots of money and lots of fame and gold chains and diamonds and all this stuff. And it was, you know, in the hip hop kind of um, culture, like that's, that really attracted me at a young age for whatever reason. I was really attracted to that. And so I continued like, I mean, I have a picture of me when I was like nine years old for Halloween, I dressed up like a gangster. So like, I just, for whatever reason, at su such a young age, I was really drawn to that kind of lifestyle, like a gangster, you know, drug dealer kind of lifestyle. And right. I think a lot of young kids get sucked into that. You know, it's appealing. Like if you're kind of talking about emotions, I didn't know how to feel or understand or deal with my emotions as a kid. Looking back, I bottled them up inside, held them inside, and avoided them at all costs. And eventually, that just kept building up, building up, building up until I was just like angry, resentful. I hated being told what to do. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I hated authority. I did terrible in school because of the authority. When I applied myself, I did amazing at things that I wanted to learn. And I felt like in school, 80% of stuff I had no interest in. So I would just get bored and obnoxious and harass the teachers, harass the kids, be like the class clown, you know, really reaching out for attention. And I think, you know, having your parents go through divorce when you're 12 years old, you know, your older brother, uh, being sent away to go live with our grandparents because we had, you know, challenges uh, in the family, just parents fighting a lot and things like that. You know, they're working full time, they're dealing with their own stuff, their own childhood stuff, maybe they hadn't dealt with. And then, you know, next older brother being sent away because having same thing, um, you know, uh, 
I don't want to get in too many details, like with my mom's relationship with my brother, my dad's relationship with my brother and all that, like right now, not on this podcast, maybe at another time, or maybe I'll bring them on and they can talk about it if they want to. But basically we had a pretty dysfunctional family, a lot of alcoholism in the family, especially on my dad's side. Um, and certainly some on, on my mom's side there, you know, an alcoholism obviously leads to dysfunction. And I got involved at a really young age in experimenting with alcohol and drugs. I mean, I think the first time I got really drunk, I was like 12 years old. Wow. Uh, the first time I got stoned, I think I was somewhere between 10 and 13. I don't remember the exact age, but it was like, I was with my sister's boyfriend. We went out for a drive. He's like, Hey, you want some weed? I was like, yeah, sure. And it was, you know, and then all the kids I hung out with too, this is something for parents to think about. <laughs> all the kids I hung out with when I was younger were all way older than me. So when I was in fourth grade, I was hanging out with, uh, you know, sixth graders, seventh graders. When I was in sixth grade, I was hanging out with the eighth graders. When I was in seventh, eighth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was hanging out with high schoolers. You know, I've always just resonated more with people who were older than me. And a lot of these kid, older kids were like, you know, smoking weed and doing drugs and partying, you know, freshmen, sophomores, drinking a lot. And so I'd go hang out with them and, you know, lie to my parents. They didn't know I was doing this stuff. They had no idea. Sure. My, mom, my mom had no idea. It's like she wouldn't have let me do it. And when they found a suitcase full of bongs and pipes and stolen cigars and weed and all kinds of stuff that was locked up in my in a trunk that I had in my closet and they found like this huge thing. You could tell I've been doing this for years. They found it when I was like 12. It was like this crazy shock to them. Right. Understandably sure. so. And so a lot of that emotion, you know, constantly being punished, not really having anyone to talk to. It was either, it was like punishment, punishment, punishment. And for me, that wasn't effective. I think that sent me deeper into the rabbit hole of, um, disconnecting from any kind of uh, positive experience in society. And it just, I, I think it just pushed me away further and like, okay, punish me. Well, watch me. I'm going to go, uh, go be this person that you think I am. You know what I mean? And oh. a lot of this stuff I have to think through even deeper to really understand the mindset I was going through. I know there was pain. I know there was fear. I know there was resentment. I know there was uh, confusion. Um, but at the same time, man, when I took a hit of weed or I drank, it was like, I felt amazing. So not knowing how to deal with your emotions and not really knowing what they are, feeling like I had to like suppress them inside. And then you get stoned or drunk or high or something and you feel amazing. And you've been told your whole life, this stuff is bad for you. It's terrible for you. It's going to kill you. It's horrible for you. You're going to feel terrible. Da, da, da. And then you smoke it and you're like, ah, oh, I feel amazing. I feel like relaxed for the first time. And it's like subconsciously, I think we think as a kid, oh, my parents are liars or these people are liars. Teachers are liars. Police are liars. The, the dare officers that came to our school were liars because this makes me feel amazing. I don't feel this tension inside. I feel relaxed and calm and great, right? Now, what I talk to my kids about is, you know, my seven-year-old, my 12-year-old is like, look, hopefully you never touch any of this stuff. But if you ever do, you need to know, like, yes, you're going to feel amazing. Yes, you're going to feel great. Yes, you're going to, you know, you might feel like you have more confidence or you might feel, you know, relaxed or whatever it is. But 
there is negative consequences to that. You are going to have a come down from it. You may make really stupid decisions when you're drunk. You know, you may, you know, it may not be yourself. You may do something you regret. You may, you know, end up, you know, getting in a car wreck or something really, really terrible because it also impairs your cognition and there are detrimental side effects, health effects, you know, can lead to cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So I talked to them about both sides. So if they ever do try it, they can, they can reconnect to that, right? Hopefully they don't, but they can reconnect to the truth, like the whole truth. And I think as parents, we try to lie to our kids, like so-called white lies to protect them. And I, th- and I, I actually think that's not a great approach. I want to be as like honest with my kids as possible. Um, and help them see the full story. So, um, so they're more informed. And so to kind of put a pin on that, um, I mean, if I, if I look back, I think at 15, 16, 17, 18, I was lost more than anything, but I was, all my energy was just all in like, you know, I was running a full on business uh, at that time. I mean, and I was running around with gangsters and I was, running around with guns and I was running from the police and I was on house arrest and I was, you know, it was, I was all in like the things, people who know me know that when I do something, I go all in and I've had that my whole life. So unfortunately at a young age, I went all in into that kind of lifestyle, that negative lifestyle, the drugs and alcohol and, and drug dealing and and all of that. I mean, 100% all in. And I had two, two options, two outcomes. It was, prison or it was death and now and i could feel that i could feel either one of those i was on the doorstep of prison or death and and i had a great mentor in my life uh dennis davis lived with him and his family and martina davis beautiful loving caring mother and and just philosophical kind of spiritual father lived with them for a while and i started really you know reflecting uh, on life, meditating, learning from them. And it, it just opened me up to some other possibilities. And, you know, long story short, a story for another time, moved to California, San Diego, and basically started my life over at 18. And realize, and, and again, went all in, you know, from then until now, I was like, I want to learn to be healthy and happy and fulfilled. I know what it's like to be unhealthy and sick and near death. Um, digestive issues and health issues. And like I was eating so poorly and plus all the alcohol and the cigarettes and everything else, I was killing myself. Right. Um, And not to mention, I had people that were, you know, uh, potentially trying to kill me as well and getting in fights and things like this. So it's definitely on death's doorstep. Um, But since then uh, I am now healthier, happier, more fulfilled than I've ever been in my entire life. So I learned a lot from that. Thank God I survived it and um, can help others who are struggling with things like that. But, you know, I don't know if I had a solution-oriented mindset back then. I can't, uh, you know, I don't think I did. I don't think I had quite as much of one. It was more like that bullheaded stubbornness, all in, no matter what, get out of my way kind of drive um, that I still have some of that today, but I would say with uh, hopefully with more wisdom, with the ability to, dis- I'd say, or, or at least with more discernment, like that drive and commitment and all of that, but with discernment and go, okay, am I in the right direction? Am I making sure I'm not hurting other people in my path? Am I taking care of the people that I care about? Right. These are the things that I focus on today. Wow. That's uh, 
that's some powerful stuff. I actually want to go even deeper into that story. So maybe we can do that on a separate occasion. Um, cause I think that there's a, there's a lot of psychology that you could probably, you know, go backwards and travel in your head, uh, to, to experience. I don't yeah. know if you want yeah, to. Yeah. There's, but... there, there's a lot there for sure, but I want to go back to your diet. Um, so what was your diet when you thought you were eating healthy? A lot of people think they're eating healthy today. When you thought you were eating healthy in your early 20s, before you were diagnosed, said I was active, I was exercising, you know, I was doing all the right stuff. How could I have these autoimmune diseases? What were you eating and what about that made you think it was a healthy diet? Okay, so it was actually pretty simple. I mean, um, I was, I had graduated from college at the age of 23 I then went to live with some friends in Mountain View, California, and I was, you know, working at NASA as an aeronautical engineer. And I would, you know, go to the grocery store and I would buy food and bring it home and prepare it myself or prepare it with my housemates. And my dad at that time uh, had gotten me a book. It was a book about diabetic, the diabetic cookbook. And I would look through it and the entire cookbook was all about low carb, everything. So, you know, it was like salmon and chicken and, uh, turkey burgers and, uh, you know, trout with peas and, you know, these types of like animal food, heavy dishes that were all about being low carb. So I literally just followed the instructions. This was, uh, this was, this was before your diagnosis. No, no, this is, this is basically right after I got diagnosed when I was on the low carbohydrate diet. Right. Right. What were you eating before that? That you thought was, Oh, before that. Yeah. Yeah. Before. before. Okay. So, uh, when I, as I, as I grew up, um, my mom, um, was responsible for making most of the food in the household. And she told me from a very young age, or she, she got me very interested in food from a very young age. So at the age of seven, eight years old, I was in the kitchen with her and I was helping her cook, you know, pasta with meat sauce. And, uh, we would prepare sandwiches together and she would teach me how to make eggs with, you know, hollandaise sauce on the weekends and waffles and things like that. And so, on a typical day, what I was eating is I'd wake up in the morning and I'd eat, you know, a cereal and I, and the cereal could be, it wasn't one of those sugar laden cereals. It was either like checks or, uh, Cheerios or grape nuts, something like that. Right. Every once in a while, I'd sneak in something like, you know, a cinnamon toast crunch with a little bit of sugar in there. But like, for the most part, I was trying to eat the quote unquote healthy cereals. That was my so favorite. That, that was my favorite breakfast. cereal as a kid, cinnamon toast crunch, like Pure sugar, pure poison, pure toxins. As a kid, unbelievable, I <laughs> unbelievable. So I, I mean, I I would agree with that. Actually, one day we ran out of milk, and I had to put orange juice on my cinnamon toast crunch, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh god, this is going to be a horrendous experience." And it made the orange juice taste really, really good. <laughs> so keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, there so I would eat that for breakfast. Sometimes I'd have like an Eggo waffle, um, and I really love those as well. And then by the time I got to like lunchtime, my mom literally. My mom made a sandwich for me and she packed my lunch for me every single day without a single day off between the first day of uh, kindergarten and the last day of 12th grade. I mean, you talk about relentless commitment. Like that was my mom right there. She did that for me and for both of my sisters. It was unbelievable. So in that lunch, she would pack us a sandwich that was, you know, carefully constructed that would change on a daily basis, but there was deli meat inside and there was deli cheese inside. And there was a little bit of, uh, you know, tomato and maybe some lettuce. And then there was like a Dutch crunch bread on the outside. Right. And then in addition to that, we might have like a little Tupperware container with some pasta inside of it, maybe some leftovers from the night before there was a little bit of fish or maybe some meatloaf. 
And then by the time we got home for dinner, uh, you know, I would go play a game of soccer or like practice soccer for two to three hours. And I come home and I was ravenous. And then at that point we'd be eating, you know, usually some type of meat along with some vegetables. So it could be like meatloaf with, uh, you know, broccoli and green beans, or it could be, uh, you know, like cockle van. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's like, you know, chicken cooked in a French style with some phyllo dough on top of it with a side of, uh, you know, maybe with like a, a side salad to go. What'd you call that? Cock de van? Uh, cock van. So that's that it was cheat like cheese on chicken and like sauce and stuff. Yeah, it's like chicken with uh, like a phyllo dough crust on top of it. I think cockovan means basically like chicken in wine. And I think it was cooked in a wine sauce. Probably so my mom used to make something similar to that. She, it was called, she called it chicken divan. And it was like, it was like yeah, our favorite dish. Yeah, growing up. It was like one of our yeah. favorite dishes. Yeah. When yeah, she exactly. cooked, so she was like, she was an amazing cook, you know. And we did cook and eat together as a family, like as we were younger and then, and then the separation happened and then it just, you know, it was like, everyone was so busy, just like eat fast food, eat whatever, eat top ramen, eat McDonald's, you know, eat, but like, so it sounds like you're, you know, kind of a typical home cooked kind of um, family. I mean, yeah, it does sound healthier than unfortunately what most Americans are eating today, which today it's highly processed, high sugar, uh, fast food that is unbelievably toxic, right? I mean, that's unfortunate what most people are eating today. Um, but it sounds right. like, I mean, you guys had some vegetables. It was home-cooked foods and meats and things like that. Um, so generally, I right. mean, I would so, say you, you probably were eating uh, healthier than most people. For sure, for sure. I think the distinction to make is that like back in the 1980s and 1990s, y- there wasn't as much information about nutrition as there is now, not even yeah. close, right? Yeah. And so- my mom was doing the best she could with the information that she had at the time. Like she was doing a great job. Right. So what she would do is she would go to the grocery store. We would go to the grocery store together. We would buy real ingredients. We would bring the real ingredients home and we would make the real ingredients, right? That's supposed to be healthy. But the problem is that the real ingredients that we were buying were uh, number one, more processed than the packaging would lead you to believe. And number two, it was, uh, again, the marketing was about drink milk. I mean, I remember the, the advertising <laughs> with like Andre Agassi with a, with a milk mustache and it said, got milk. And I was like, he's my idol. I want to be just like that guy. I'm going to go drink some milk. So the advertising and the sort of environment was about milk is good for you. Eggs are good for you. Cheese is good for you. Meat is good for you. So that happened to everybody. So when you go to the grocery store, despite the fact that you're trying to buy quote unquote healthy food, you end up with a bunch of ingredients that you then go prepare for yourself, but those ingredients themselves are not the right ingredients to buy. But again, it wasn't her fault. She was doing a phenomenal job and she was trying to do everything she possibly could to raise a family in, a, in an environment where we weren't relying on ultra processed foods and we weren't getting fast food multiple times per week. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it's like, I, I don't blame my parents for anything that happened and I love them both today and we have great relationships today, right? And I think it's important for people who are going through challenges to look back and, and if you have blame towards, you know, people in your life or family members or resentment and, and blaming them for things, you know, it's an opportunity to try and find a way to forgive them. And because they're doing they did the best they could with what they had. And that's, you're exactly right when you say that. And so right. you went from fairly home cooked, you know, uh, meat and dairy and vegetables and different things, sandwiches, whatever, 
pastas, breads, cereals to, you know, being diagnosed, you have alopecia, Hashimoto's, type one diabetes. These are all autoimmune diseases, by the way. Correct. Type one diabetes for people who don't understand is an autoimmune disease significantly different in its causes and so forth. Well, we don't know on the causes side, but different in different from type two diabetes, different from type one and a half diabetes, different from these other types of diabetes. So why don't you talk just to give people a little background who don't know the differences mm-hmm. between the different types of diabetes. Okay, great. So there's basically, historically, there's only been two types of diabetes, type one and type two, right? And so people are like, oh, okay, type one is what happens to kids. Type two is what happens to adults. And just leave it at that. It's, it's a lot more complicated. That's got a lot more nuance. So in today's world, there's type one, type 1.5, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and now type three diabetes. So I'll walk you through each one of them. Type one and type 1.5 diabetes are autoimmune versions of diabetes, just like you were talking about. Okay. Autoimmune means your own immune system mounts an attack on a specific population of cells in a particular organ. And then it causes those cells to uh, get destroyed. And as a result of that, you end up with some type of endocrine dysfunction. In this situation, my immune system attacked the beta cells inside of my pancreas. The beta cells are responsible for secreting insulin. So if you attack the beta cells, they do what's called programmed cell death or apoptosis. Those beta cells self-destruct. And as a result of that, now your ability to secrete insulin goes from being what's considered normal down to effectively zero. So as a result of that, immune system attacks itself that causes a loss of insulin production. And now I have to go inject insulin from the outside world. So I have to, you know, you can use a, uh, a syringe, you can use an insulin pump, you can use an insulin pen. There's many different delivery mechanisms, but the idea here is that now I'm responsible for, for managing my own insulin use and managing insulin is a very, it's a, it's a, I mean, it requires a lot of, a lot of thought and a lot of consideration, very, very, very complex topic. But suffice it to say that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition that generally affects people under the age of 30 and is a relatively rapid progression towards uh, full insulin dependence. And I say rapid, meaning you get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and usually 12 to 18 months later, you are fully, fully 100% insulin dependent. Type 1.5 is slightly different. It affects people who are the over the age of 30. And it is a much slower progressing version of type one diabetes. So it's adult onset, slow progressing type one diabetes. Some people who are diagnosed with type 1.5 diabetes may never become fully insulin dependent. Sometimes their, their pancreas still manufactures a little bit, but the idea is there's a sort of like a weaker version of type one, if you will, that affects adults. Those are the only two versions of autoimmunity in, in the diabetes world. That's it. Everything else is not autoimmune. Okay. Pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and type three. So pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes are connected to one another. And the reason is because you, if you develop insulin resistance, which is the precursor condition to both of those conditions, you develop insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, if uncorrected, develops into pre-diabetes. Pre-diabetes, if uncorrected, turns into type 2 diabetes. But the beauty here is that in the same way that you go from one step to the next to the next in order to get to type two diabetes, you can also reverse it. You can go from type two to pre-diabetic, from pre-diabetic down to insulin resistant, from insulin resistant down to insulin sensitive. And when you do that, then you can technically completely reverse the entire disease process. So that leaves us with uh, gestational diabetes, which is a 
type of diabetes that is also, again, it starts with insulin resistance. It progresses to prediabetes and then gestational diabetes. That happens to women when they are pregnant. It usually goes away after pregnancy. But what most women don't understand is that even if you were living with gestational diabetes and it disappears once you deliver your baby, the mere fact that you were living with gestational diabetes is a warning sign that you have metabolic dysfunction inside of your blood vessels and liver and kidneys and muscle. That's number one. Number two, women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes are at a 65% increased risk for the development of type two diabetes three to five years in the future. It is a huge wake up signal, a huge wake up sign that something is wrong and you have an opportunity to fix that thing so that you don't develop type two diabetes in the future. And it also can increase the risk for the development of pre-diabetes and type two diabetes in your child many years into the future. So that's, that's gestational. The final thing is type three diabetes. Type three diabetes is a new form of diabetes that's basically been created over the past 10 to 20 years. And it's just a new name for an old condition. The condition is called Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is caused is basically dementia, vascular dementia and vascular dementia is a condition that is highly influenced by your metabolic state. It is highly influenced by insulin resistance. So the more insulin resistant you become in your muscles and in your liver, the more insulin resistant your brain becomes and your brain when exposed to high levels of insulin over the course of time um, from your pancreas, when your brain is living in an insulin resistant metabolic state over the course of 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years can lead you towards vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And the reason why researchers are now calling it type three diabetes is because they, they think of it as insulin resistance of your brain. And it is a fascinating area of research. And um, what we are seeing, the general theme is that insulin resistance is a condition that not only increases your risk for many different forms of diabetes, but it also is directly linked with cardiovascular disease. It is directly linked with cancer. And Diabetes, heart disease, and cancer claims the lives of more than 80% of our population. Those are the big three, and we have to get a handle on those three. And if you want to unite all those three into one common mechanism, the common mechanism is insulin resistance, period, end of story. So we're going to unpack that and dive deep into it. Talking about autoimmune diabetes first. Uh, which is type one, type one and a half. Um, the kind of conventional medical scientific community is not exactly in agreement yet of what the underlying cause of these autoimmune diabetes are. Correct? Uh, that is a correct statement. Now, and we're going to go into that in a little bit. And I want to know, I want to know your, th I know your thoughts. I want to have you share your thoughts with everyone around maybe what you think is causing the autoimmune disease uh, for diabetes to appear. Type 2 diabetes and beyond, or prediabetes or gestational diabetes and beyond, which is what, you know, the different types of diabetes that most people have today, prediabetes, gestational diabetes, type 2 diabetes, type 3 diabetes. This is what mo the vast majority of people with diabetes or 
being uh, going to be diagnosed with diabetes have, these are primarily diet and lifestyle related, right? Mm -hmm. And we can talk about what that is, what those underlying causes and conditions that lead to insulin resistance. And when you know the underlying causes, then we can use our solution-oriented mindset, like we talked about, and said, okay, if I know the causes, let me stop the causes, the things that are causing it, and start to implement the solutions that will help empower my body to prevent this from getting worse and or halt its progression completely and or reverse it entirely. And you've seen many cases of this, I know, in your work through Mastering Diabetes and a lot of the people that you work with. Um, for people who don't know, you, you ended up getting your um, PhD in, uh, didn't you do your thesis on diabetes? What did you do? You basically right. went, you decided to, okay, I need to understand this. And so you started going to school. Uh, you went, continued your schooling to learn more about health, right? That's exactly right. So, you know, to follow up on the previous story we talked about, I go to the doctors, I'm sorry, I go to the hospital, I get diagnosed with type one diabetes. I then eat a low carbohydrate diet. I eat the low carbohydrate diet for a year. My life is getting worse and worse and worse. My energy levels are going lower. My insulin use is going up, even though my doctor said that wouldn't happen. My blood glucose is going up, even though my doctor said that wouldn't happen. I developed anxiety. I became depressed. I mean, my life pretty much just sucked at that moment in time. And I basically told myself there has to be a better way. There was one moment in particular that just, just pissed me off beyond belief. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At healinglife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors, uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at healinglife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity. All of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net. And I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. Okay. I had played a soccer game. I, I actively play soccer. It's like my favorite sport of all time. <clears throat> and um, at lunchtime at NASA, there was a soccer game with a bunch of people who would go out and we played very competitive and it was actually really fun. So I would play that game and that game happens every single day. And um, what I recognized is that under normal circumstances, I could play a game of soccer and I would be able to recover with it approximately 24 hours. So I could play a game and then I could go out and I could play another game approximately 24 hours and I could repeat that three or four times a week. Okay. At this time in my life, I would play one game of soccer and it would take me four days to recover. Okay. My recovery time 4X because my muscles were tight, my joints were tight, and it didn't, I, I felt like I was in the body of an 80 year old man. 
So I'm already tight and I'm already sort of like fatigued from having played a game of soccer three days before. I come home, I check my blood glucose, I look at my blood glucose meter and I was expecting the number to be somewhere in the low 100 so that I could eat dinner. I look at the number and it's a 266. I was so pissed off because I had done everything that the doctors had told me. I kept my carbohydrate intake low. I was exercising frequently. Uh, I was drinking a lot of water and I was keeping my stress levels low. I literally was like, check, 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 check. Look at my blood glucose meter, 266. I was like, this system doesn't work. And I took my blood glucose meter and I threw it against the wall as hard as I could, shattered into a thousand pieces. I fell onto the couch on my back and I started crying. And I was like, this is dumb. What am I doing with my life? I'm, I'm following information that clearly doesn't work because if it was working, my blood glucose would be more controlled. My insulin use would not have doubled over the course of the first year. I wouldn't be stressed. I wouldn't have anxiety about my health. Uh, I would be able to exercise like a normal 23-year-old guy, not feeling like I'm living in the body of an 80-year-old man. Something is wrong. So then I basically opened my mind at that moment and I said, boom, solutions oriented. What is your solution going to be? And I started talking to people who talked to people who talked to people who then pointed me in the direction of going in the direction of a plant-based diet. So I wasn't looking for that. I ended up becoming friends with a guy named Dr. Doug Graham. He is a, uh, an expert on uh, plant-based nutrition, and he teaches people how to basically adopt a raw food diet. I said, Doug, help me. I, I'm in a state of despair. Can you help me out? And he said, Cyrus, I'm going to change your life in one week. And your life is going to be fundamentally changed from the inside out. And this is going to be one of the greatest things that ever happened to you. What year, what year was that? 2003. So I traveled to Colorado. I go hang out with him for a week uh, at a group sports retreat with a whole bunch of other people. And there he basically is educating people about the, you know, the detriment of a standard American diet, the detriment of a low carbohydrate diet and why eating a whole food plant-based diet that's very high in fruit and vegetables is a phenomenal solution for short-term and long-term health. So I go and I absorb all the information, you know, he's teaching, I'm writing every single thing down. We're playing sports multiple times a day and already within 24, 48, 72 hours, I can feel the difference inside of me. More energy, more hydrated, sleeping a little bit better, uh, feeling much more hopeful. Blood glucose value started to come down. By the time I left his retreat in one week, my blood glucose had fallen so sharply that my insulin use had fallen by 40% because I had to give myself less insulin because my blood glucose was much more controllable. My mind was blown. I was like, Doug, in seven days, you literally have made more change in my blood glucose than I have been experiencing since the time I got diagnosed a year ago. And he said, he said, Cyrus, when you're dealing with the right information, anything is possible. When you're dealing with crappy information, you can't really make sense of anything. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. So he goes, I want you to call me five years from now and tell me how you're feeling. And I was like, wow, five years, that's a long time. He's like, it's not a long time. It's a blip on the radar. You'll be fine. Go do it. So I credit Doug with having fundamentally changed my life from the inside out. Long story short, the reason I'm telling you this story is because I made the transition to eating a plant-based diet. And all of a sudden I started to feel a thousand times better. I continued this process. I, I said, you know what? I love this so much. And my insulin use is down. My blood glucose is down. I can, I'm, I'm more active. I went and I purchased a bike, a road bike. And I got on that road bike and I rode that bike. I think it was 8,000 miles in the next year. I was so excited. And I just would ride my bike all over the place. I signed up for a, uh, a, an endurance cycling event. And I joined a team and I was racing with other people and had a phenomenal time. Point being is that I, 
I was reborn from the inside out. And I attribute 99% of that to eating a plant-based diet. And so I went and got a PhD in the topic of insulin resistance. So when I went to UC Berkeley, I started working with uh, Mark Hellerstein, who is a modern day goodwill hunting. This guy is so freaking smart. He, he knows so much information. He is literally an encyclopedia. He's the type of guy that when he talks, I literally have to follow him around and scribble things down on a piece of paper so that I can make sense of what he's saying. So he gave me the opportunity to study insulin resistance inside and out. He said, you're going to create insulin resistance in, in laboratory animals. You're going to reverse insulin resistance in laboratory animals. You're going to use intermittent fasting as one of the techniques, and you can use exercise as another technique, but I want you to become one of the world's experts in insulin resistance. And what I said, what was his name? His name's Mark Hellerstein. And so uh, over the course of the next five years, I uh, took his advice and uh, performed hundreds of experiments and uh, learned everything there was to possibly learn about how to create and how to reverse insulin resistance using food and using intermittent fasting. And as a result of that, it has become very clear to me, extremely clear to me that the information that's present inside of the scientific world about what causes insulin resistance and what you can do to reverse insulin resistance. This information is crystal clear. And it started in the 1920s. It is now a hundred years old. And over the course of the last hundred years, research team after research team after research team has built upon their predecessors and has developed a very clear picture of what actually causes it. And the things that actually cause insulin resistance, the number one cause, is not eating carbohydrates, it's not carbs, it's not sugar. That's what people think. It is eating a diet that contains a significant amount of fat, dietary fat. Lipids cause insulin resistance. And excess consumption of lipids causes insulin resistance and that sets the stage for prediabetes and type two diabetes and it worsens blood glucose control and type one diabetes. So I was able to learn that, implement it, experiment with it, develop insulin resistance in laboratory animals, and then rescue that insulin sensitivity by using intermittent fasting and calorie restriction. So um, the scientific world knows the answer. And the scientific world, truth be told, has known the answer for 100 years. The general public does the opposite. And this is what kills me. This is really where I, I get like, it just blows my mind that the scientific research is very clear, but yet what the general public does, the general public follows fad diets. The general public follows things that look shiny, follows shiny objects like the Atkins diet, the zone diet, the South beach diet, the, the paleo diet, the, uh, the ketogenic diet. And all of these are literally the exact opposite of a low fat plant-based whole food diet. Okay. These are the opposite of the type of diet that would actually, uh, maintain health over the course of time. These diets cause insulin resistance, make you more insulin resistant over the time, and they increase your overall chronic disease risk. Yet these are the diets that everybody on social media is following. These are the diets that people on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok are raving about. And this is what your average person is exposed to who doesn't have an opportunity to go lock themselves into a library for five years and read all the scientific research. So we do have a problem, but it's definitely solvable. 
So there, there have been more studies recently uh, in the last few years that have replicated exactly what you're talking about. You know, m- these are mice studies where they show that uh, putting them on a ketogenic diet does increase insulin resistance, which leads to type 2 diabetes. Now, and as you said, this research has been around for a long time. But the other side of that is... There are a lot of people who do a ketogenic diet and they say they feel better and they feel amazing and their energy is better and uh, they're not necessarily seeing insulin resistance or maybe it's building and they're not aware of it. I don't know. I'm not seeing their, you know, or they, I'm not seeing their fasting A1C or any of these kinds of things. I don't know. But people claim this all the time online. And the, you know, there are researchers and scientists who also say like this recent study in 2018 that basically replicated the the exact study you're talking about this ketogenic diet increasing insulin resistance that there are some limitations of the study it's a mouse study it doesn't necessarily translate over to human beings um and uh, i believe the mice didn't have diabetes as well so that was like a factor they're saying that was limiting but i mean what do you say to that when a researcher or anybody says, well, yeah, this is my studies. We're humans. We're not mice. Yeah, it's a good question. So the answer is <clears throat> there's a very strong crossover between the, uh, the metabolism or the sort of metabolic uh, functions within a mouse uh, and within a human. So from a genetic perspective, mice and humans are very, very, very close to one another. Okay. And when I say that we're very close to one another, I mean that our genomes are, uh, you know, like if you did a Venn diagram of the mouse genome versus the human genome, there would be a ridiculous amount of crossover. Um, and there are some very important genes, which are very different. And that causes us to look different, talk different, have a different, um, you know, different body size, different energy regulation mechanisms and beyond. But the point is that from a metabolic perspective, uh, a lot of the mechanisms that happen in small rodents are very similar to what happens inside of us. Okay. We're mammals. We're all part of the same general uh, family. And as a result of that, there's a lot of mammalian architecture, which is conserved. Okay. That being said, humans are not mice. Mice are not humans. So there's definitely some differences. When you study a mouse inside of a laboratory, the reason you do that is because you want to test a hypothesis. You want to gain insight into what could be happening in a human. You learn from it. You repeat it. You repeat it again. You repeat it again. You repeat it again. And you convince yourself that you have something real. And then when you have that, you then go test the hypothesis in real human beings. Okay. So mice are what are referred to as preclinical experiments. And if you do an observation in a mouse, or it could be even a rat, or it could be a monkey, Okay. It's totally fine. These are all preclinical models that give you insights into what could be happening in humans. And then eventually you progress to doing it in humans. And then once you're studying humans, you're actually, you can see sometimes there's a difference between what you observed in a animal versus what's actually happening in a human. But again, it, there's no, it's very hard to predict whether the results are going to be identical or whether they're going to be slightly different from one another. And that's okay. Chances are they're probably going to be slightly different. But the point here is that I don't have to rely on mouse models in order to gain insights into what's happening in humans. And the reason is because the human data is already there. There's an overwhelming amount of human research, 
which scientists have been doing again for the past hundred years, but a lot has been concentrated in the last 20 to 30 years that unequivocally demonstrates that diets that are high in dietary fat and also funny enough, diets that are high in dietary protein, both of them worsen glucose metabolism. Both of them set the stage for insulin resistance. Both of them can cause elevations in blood glucose and insulin secretion over the course of time. So if we go backwards to your original question, right? People who are eating a ketogenic diet, they say, they say, Hey, look, I've been eating this ketogenic diet. I'm, uh, you know, eating less than 30 grams of net carbohydrate per day. And take a look at my CGM, my continuous glucose monitor, take a look at this pattern. And you look at the pattern and it is flat. Their blood glucose is between 80 and hundred all day long, every single day for 24 hours. There's almost like no blip in the radar. It's literally like a flat line. And their conclusion from looking at that flat line is I'm insulin sensitive. And my response to that is you don't have enough information to conclude whether or not you're insulin sensitive. Number one, you do have a very flat line blood glucose and that is very admirable. So high five for that. No question. Okay. Number two, we have to, in order to measure insulin resistance, we need two variables. We need to know what is your blood glucose doing? And we need to know what is your insulin requirements. Only if we have those two pieces of information, can we put them together to determine what your actual level of insulin resistance is. But if you're looking at only one and not looking at the other, you only have half the picture. So the blood glucose meter is important. The CGM is important. The second thing that people, you know, especially with type one diabetes will do is they'll say, Hey, look, take a look at my CGM. It's a flat line. And I'll prove it to you. I injected only eight units of insulin all day long, right? I used to inject 25 units of insulin. Now I inject eight units of insulin and my blood glucose is a fat line. So I have my blood glucose and I have my insulin and I can prove to you that I'm insulin sensitive. And my answer to that is cool. You have low blood glucose, you have low insulin but here's the problem. You're actually in an insulin resistant state because what you are not doing is you are not measuring your insulin and glucose when challenged with glucose. That is the key. This is the one key that even a lot of the scientific world can't get straight. You cannot measure insulin resistance independent of a glucose challenge. You they're not, they're not eating carbohydrate. They're not eating carbohydrates is what you're saying. They're not, they're not eating carbohydrate and, or if they were to go take an oral glucose tolerance test, which is a test that you can take at quest laboratory or, you know, lab core, that is the most, that is the easiest test that you can take for insulin resistance. Um, that w in which you will drink a solution that contains 75 grams of glucose in water, you drink it, and then you monitor your blood glucose and insulin over the course of the next two hours. You, you take the glucose challenge and then you monitor your glucose and insulin, right? Or like you were saying, you eat a, a plate of carbohydrate, you eat a mixed meal that contains a significant carbohydrate load, and then you challenge your, and then you monitor your glucose and insulin over the course of time. That's the only way that you're ever going to get a definitive result of insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, an actual measurement. Anything outside of that, whether you're just looking at a CGM or you're looking at your you know, insulin pump and you're trying to make these you know, ad hoc calculations, it's not good enough. So what the ketogenic world suffers from, in my professional opinion, is a whole bunch of armchair scientists who believe 
that they are measuring insulin resistance, but they're not. And I'm not trying to point a finger at any one of them. And I'm not kind of trying to call them stupid or anything of the sort. They just don't have the right information at their fingertips. And they're trying to draw conclusions without enough information. And as a result of that, they think that they're operating in an insulin sensitive state, but in reality, they are not only in an insulin resistant state, they're not not only playing the carbohydrate avoidance game so that they can suppress their blood glucose and suppress their insulin use, but they are so insulin resistant that if they were to eat a single food that contains carbohydrate, and when I say a single food, I mean one banana, literally one banana that contains 20 grams of carbohydrate, one peach that contains 20 to 25 grams of carbohydrate, one medjool date, one date that contains 18 grams of carbohydrate. They were to eat any of these tiny, small foods that contain carbohydrate energy, their blood glucose would jump up real high and their insulin use would jump up real high. And that right there tells you that when challenged with a carbohydrate bolus, their blood glucose and insulin respond with very high numbers or very high values concentrations. And that right there tells you that they have not equipped their vasculature and their liver and their muscle to be able to handle carbohydrate. And as a result of that, that is telltale classical insulin resistance. So as long as you're avoiding carbohydrate, you might come to the conclusion that you are insulin sensitive, but when you challenge with carbohydrate and you see the net result of a high blood glucose and or high insulin, that is a definitive uh, indicator that you are living in an insulin resistant state. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah. So what do you see? What have you seen personally when someone who's on a ketogenic diet and they have diabetes, for example, uh, and they do this uh, blood glucose test, either the oral test, the specific one, or they, you know, a couple pieces of fruit, like what do the numbers look like? What have you actually seen? Okay. So you, let's just say you take somebody who's living in an, eating a ketogenic diet and their blood glucose is 85 before they take a test, and their average use of insulin is, call it 15 units per day, okay? If they were to eat, take an oral glucose tolerance test in which they uh, drink a solution containing 75 grams of glucose, okay, and then monitor their blood glucose over the course of the next two hours and monitor their insulin over the course of the next two hours, their blood glucose would likely go north of 250, okay? Significant elevation, okay? Your glucose, when you eat a meal, should go no higher than 140, 130 to 140. That's what happens in normal non-diabetic individuals, okay? Goes about 130, 140, then it comes right back down, goes back down to about 100 or so after a meal. So their glucose would likely go from, you know, call it 85 north of 250. And the amount of insulin they have to inject in order to get their blood glucose to come down would be very significant. So let's say under normal circumstances for a low carbohydrate meal, they would inject two units of insulin for that meal. In this scenario, when they take that oral glucose tolerance test, they could inject upwards of six to seven to eight units just for that one meal in order to bring their blood glucose back down. So now what they're doing is they're significantly using, they're using a significantly higher amount of total insulin and their blood glucose went high. And as a result of that, the ratio of carbohydrate to insulin, which is how you calculate uh, uh, insulin sensitivity, the ratio of carbohydrate to insulin uh, is actually very low. And as a result of that, that means that they're insulin resistant. Does that make sense? Yeah. So 
if they're if if someone on a ketogenic diet for specifically talking about diabetes here saying that this is helping me be insulin sensitive and they do this test and it spikes up tremendously their insulin spikes up you know the the glucose the glucose spikes up then the insulin use has to go up to match that glucose what you're saying here is that's a clear sign that you are not insulin sensitive because if you were insulin sensitive you wouldn't need you wouldn't have those numbers spike up like that so Correct. so you're saying that claim is not accurate now yep and you yourself eat a very high carbohydrate very low fat diet like the doug graham right. anyone who studied his work obviously the 80 10 10 has a lot of controversy around it you know it kind of led to fruitarian and kind of led to a lot of controversy around that and people claiming it's a very unhealthy diet right 80 10 10 was like 80 percent carbohydrates 10 percent protein protein 10 fat. fat right mm-hmm. um which led to kind of like the whole fruitarian thing and and then you know i think that went to an extreme are you doing the 80 10 10 or is what you're doing different than that okay good question when i first started eating a uh the, the doug Ramway, i was definitely eating 80 10 10 and i was doing that for about 14 years and um i was eating 80 10 10 as a raw food eater meaning no cooked anything yep <clears throat> i did that for a while it's, it's hard it's hard man raw it's food hard. i mean raw food diet is hard and uh we did that for a year when my daughter was born. My wife and I did like 12 years ago, 100% raw food for a year. And um, we loved it though. It was like the cleanest I think my body had ever felt in my life up to that point. It was like, I, I looked yep. at it like cleansing or detoxing for like a year straight. It was actually pretty totally. amazing. I found it very hard to sustain and maintain after that. So we started doing cooked food again, uh, adding in beans and rice and quinoa and stuff like that. It's still keeping a lot of, you know, fresh vegetables and smoothies and juices. But yeah, I found the raw food diet to be very healing and also limiting uh, long-term. Restrictive, sure. Yep. Yeah, no question, no question. So from like a social perspective, it's- So you did raw food for 14 years? I did raw food diet for 14 years. And funny Dude, enough- that's uh, that's crazy. That's the very- epic. That's <laughs> a whole hat off to you, brother. That's That's nuts. Well, thank you. Um, I, I was actually introduced <laughs> to Joel Furman. So I had read Joel Furman's book, Eat to yep. Live, back in uh, you know, 2012 or something like that. And then uh, friends of mine introduced me to him. So I had a phone call with him um, probably around 2017 or so. And uh, I just got to know him over the phone and we had a really good time talking with each other. And at that point, he had actually started to uh, tell me that uh, I could be improving the quality, the nutrient uh, diversity of my diet. And by, by, uh, by lightly steaming non-starchy vegetables like cauliflower and broccoli and cabbage. And I was like, huh, I was not aware of this. So I did a little bit more research and under, you know, with his recommendation, I said, okay, cool. Let's just start doing this. So I started integrating a little bit more steamed vegetables and then steamed vegetables turned into some grains, turned into some squash, turned into some potatoes. And before I knew it, I was now eating 50% of my diet is cooked and 50% of my diet is raw. Totally fine. But here's the thing. Uh, two things. Number one, uh, I have not come across any research that demonstrates that doing that eating more cooked uh, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains is problematic from a chronic disease perspective. Okay, as long as the overall principle of eating a very plant-strong diet is maintained. Okay, so again, I'm eating still 100% plant-based diet. I just happen to change the amount of co- cooked food versus raw food, and you know now I'm at a 50-50. Let's call it that. 
But here, number two, my carbohydrate to fat to protein ratio hasn't changed. So mm. I started out as an 80-10-10 eater. Now I'm still eating 80-10-10 by choice, 100% by choice. But what we do in the Mastery Diabetes Method, what we wrote about in our book and what you know, 800 scientific references and beyond have all sort of pointed in the direction of is that if you can get your fat intake and your protein intake to somewhere between 10 and 15% of your total calories, then you are maximizing your insulin sensitivity. And that translates to improved uh, health in the long-term and a significantly lower chronic disease risk. So my recommendation is actually, if you want to follow me, you want to follow Doug, do it, go for it. No problem. But if you feel like that's too restrictive, like you were saying, you want to be a little bit more loosey goosey, totally fine. But just try and keep your total fat and total protein intake to each of them, approximately 10 to 15% of your total diet. And, and then the rest of your diet come from whole carbohydrates that come from fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. You're going to be loving life. Your chronic disease risk is going to come down significantly. Your insulin sensitivity is going to go very high. And as a result of that, you're going to be maximizing your long-term health. So what were your numbers like on 80, 10, 10 raw food for 14 years? What was your, because the, the, the fear is for people with diabetes, when I have carbohydrates, my insulin use goes up exponentially, but you in fact have shown that the more carbohydrates you eat and the less fat you eat, that your insulin use has gone significantly down. And I know you have people in the mastering diabetes community who you've replicated this with across the board. So it's not just you, you're not some unique genetic specimen that is working for, it's working for many people around the world. And what were your numbers like then? And then did they improve, change, stay the same when you added in more cooked food like legumes and beans and, and things like that? Did they stay the same? Did they change, did they improve? Uh, so give us, give us a glimpse of your numbers. Okay, great. So, uh, as far as my A1C is concerned, because that's the sort of three-month average blood glucose, average blood glucose marker. That's the the that's the number that all you know endocrinologists care about. That's the number that most people use to track your risk for the development of diabetes. Um, in an ideal world, your A1C would be less than five point seven percent in order to remain in the non-diabetic category. If your A1C is between five point seven and six point four, that's considered pre-diabetes. And then 6.5 and higher is considered type two diabetes. When I transitioned to eating a uh, raw food diet or a plant-based diet in 2003, my A1C was at the, at the worst, my A1C is like high sixes. It was like 6.7%, right? So that means my glucose was elevated. What, wait, what 7. was it on your key, on the ketogenic diet you were doing? Do you remember? Yeah, that's what it was. It was about 6.7%. Oh, 6.7 on keto. Okay. Correct. So 6.7. So it wasn't terribly elevated, but it was definitely elevated. And it went from about 6.7% all the way down to 5.7%. And that happened within the first year of living with, uh, or, or transitioning to a plant-based diet. Okay. So, so back now I was to in, what's considered a normal, healthy A1C, 5.7. exactly right. And then over the course of the next, you know, many years leading from like 2004, all the way to 2022, where we are now over the course of the last 18 years, my A1C has fluctuated between 5.3 and 5.7%, and it has not wavered. I mean, I'm talking about 18 years, 19 years now of living with an A1C between 5.3 and 5.7%, and uh, it's not going anywhere as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so- And what's your fasting glucose? Okay, my fasting blood glucose varies on a daily basis because it depends on how much activity I've performed. It depends on what I ate for dinner the night before, blah, 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 blah. 
fasting blood glucose goes anywhere from 75, sometimes as high as about 120. Every once in a while, my, my fasting blood glucose might be like 145 or something a little bit higher, but that's usually a, uh, you know, a very small percentage of the time, but it's somewhere usually between 75 and about 120. And that's, and that's, that's a healthy range. That's where you want to be. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. For, so clarification for people living with type one diabetes, because we are responsible for, for, for injecting our own insulin, we have to give ourselves just a little bit more error, a little bit more wiggle room, because if you're too tight on your insulin usage and you over inject insulin, you can actually induce hypoglycemia, low blood glucose, straight, straight up life-threatening. We don't want to do that. So it's actually the recommendations for people with type one is to be just a little bit like error on the side of caution and have higher blood glucose than lower blood glucose. And as a result of that, you know, having a fasting glucose of 120 versus the general recommendation for people who are non-diabetic to have a fasting glucose of less than hundred is totally 100% normal. It's totally fine. Now here's the kicker. When it came to my carbohydrates, to fat to protein quantities, this is where things get a little bit interesting because I'm giving, I'm telling you that my A1C was between 5.3 and 5.7 for the last 19 years. Okay. And I'm proud of that. I'm telling you that my, my lipids, okay. My total cholesterol went from 142 down to 97. Okay. That's total cholesterol. My LDL cholesterol went from being like in the mid seventies, which is not that elevated now down to low fifties, 52. Okay. My HDL cholesterol has also fallen a little bit, which is very uh, normal on a plant-based diet. And my HDL cholesterol is now somewhere in the mid thirties. Okay. So it's a little bit on the low side, but that's okay. As long as your LDL cholesterol is low. So my lipids are hundred percent under control. My triglyceride value is also in the fifties, which is also considered very, very highly normal. Okay. So lipid panel under control, A1C under control, blood pressure has always been under control. Okay. The kicker here is that on a previous more low carbohydrate diet, the total amount of carbohydrate I used to eat on a daily basis was about 100 grams plus or minus a couple grams here and there. Okay. So I was, I was injecting hundred grams. I'm sorry. I was eating hundred grams of carbohydrate and I was injecting an average of 42 units of insulin per day. Wow. So if you do the ratio of carbohydrate to insulin, that's again, that's what I was saying earlier. That is the measure of insulin resistance. And if you look at it on a 24 hour basis, what you'll find is that hundred divided by 42 is approximately two and a half. Okay. So hundred divided by 42 gives you two and a half. So you can call it your like insulin sensitivity index. It was, it was a 2.5. That's what it was back in the day. Yeah. You're, you're using two and a half units of insulin per, I mean, you're uh, one unit of insulin is processing two and a half grams of carbohydrates. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Exactly right. Every two and a half grams of carbohydrate that came in my mouth required one unit of insulin. Yep. Good. Now, when we switch over to eating a plant-based diet, the numerator, the number of grams of carbohydrate goes from 100 to 700. So seven times the amount of carbohydrates. Seven times the amount of carbohydrate on average. Okay. The denominator, the number of units of insulin went from 42 units down to 28 units. So 700 divided by 28. So about 40% uh, less, but seven times more carbohydrates. So seven times more, 700% more carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's do, do the math there because 
Yep. So the I don't. I can't do be, that math in my head. Forty-two divided or twenty. What did you say? Twenty-eight <laughs> divided by seven hundred. Seven hundred divided by twenty-eight gives you yeah. twenty-five. Okay. So effectively, I used to be able to eat two point five grams of carbohydrate per unit of insulin injected, and now I eat twenty-five grams of carbohydrate per unit of insulin. So my insulin sensitivity, ten x. 10x. Okay. That's, that's the number. Yep. 10x. Wow. 10x. Yep. So that's, that's the difference. Then what you were saying is true, right? I am literally a puppet. I am an end of one story. So we can't make any general scientific conclusions about what happens inside of Cyrus's body because I am just one person. But again, if you look in the research and you take a look at peer reviewed paper after peer reviewed paper, and you take a look at metabolic ward studies, you take a look at, uh, uh, study like, uh, what do you call them? Randomized control trials with, you know, 500 people in them. Then you take a look at epidemiological studies also that have like 5,000 people, 9,000 people. And you put all of this evidence together to try and, un, you know, create a story. The story is the same every single time. More fat and or more protein leads to higher fasting blood glucose, higher A1C values, higher lipid panels, higher risk for all cause mortality, lower fat, lower protein reduces chronic disease risk, reduces all these biomarkers, reduced A1C, fasting blood glucose, blood pressure, lipid panel, and reduces your risk for all cause mortality. Okay. Again, I'm just an end of one story, but what we've seen in our coaching program, working with more than 10,000 people is the exact same pattern repeating over and over and over again. And people with type one, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and type 1.5 diabetes. It's a conserved mechanism. And the research has paved the way. Our coaching program gives people the tools to be able to do it in their everyday life. So how many people or what percentage of people would you say uh, through your guys' program? Let's say with type two diabetes, because all right, let's leave autoimmune aside for a second. Let's talk about pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you know, these are primarily diet and lifestyle related. We know that today. How many people have you seen completely reverse any need for insulin or completely reverse their insulin resistance? Um, let's just say completely get off of external or exogenous insulin. Good question. People who have gotten off of exogenous insulin. So we're talking about People who are not autoimmune, people who are living with prediabetes or type two diabetes or gestational diabetes, who have been diet, who have been uh, prescribed insulin yep. to control their blood glucose. Yeah. Truth be told, I don't know the number. I stopped counting. I can't count the number because uh, the the number got quite large. If I had to take a, a stab at it, and I would say that you know we have a we've had a throughput of approximately ten thousand people come through our coaching program over the course of the last five years. Uh, the proportion of people that are using insulin is probably somewhere on the order of about 10% of those people. So we're looking at about a thousand people who have started with insulin, you know, started the program using insulin. My gut tells me that we probably are on the order of somewhere between 400 and 500 people who have gotten off of insulin completely. And um, the other, you know, 500 people will call it. Um, have probably significantly reduced their insulin, their use of insulin over the course of time if they haven't completely gotten off of it. So what signifies, what would you say, all right, someone's diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and what, what needs to happen? What biomarkers do they need to have 
for them to then claim I no longer have type 2 diabetes. I have reversed type 2 diabetes. Right question. Uh, this, this concept is actually debated in the, in the scientific research. I'm very glad you brought it up because there are, there are papers that, that, that claim that people ate a ketogenic diet and they quote unquote reversed type two diabetes. Right. And if you read the papers closely, what the papers actually demonstrate, there's one, there's one company called Verda in particular, which is, uh, I actually know the CEO Verda and he's, I consider him a friend of mine, but it's also like the, the research is frustrating because they take people with type two diabetes who have an A1C north of 6.5% and they put them through their ketogenic protocol. And then they claim that a certain percentage of them have reversed type two diabetes. If you read the fine print, the fine print tells you that their A1C went from north of 6.5% to somewhere between 57 and 6.4%, which again, that just means they went from type two diabetes to pre-diabetes. Technically mm. speaking, they are still pre-diabetic. And secondarily, what they, they, what they, they don't allow these people to exist. They don't, they don't measure them over the course of time. They basically say, uh, this group of people went through our coaching program, went through our, our you know, six month protocol and their A1C went from call it 6.9% to 6.1%. That's a reversal, which is fundamentally wrong. And secondarily, this is the thing that just blows me out of the water. They claim that even if you're still using metformin, that that's okay. You can still have technically reversed diabetes, but still be using metformin. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is a blood glucose lowering medication. And you're making the claim that you can still be using a blood glucose lowering medication with an A1C that's in the pre-diabetic range. And technically speaking, you have quote unquote reverse type two diabetes. I don't, I don't buy it for a second. The truth is that in, in um, the, if you had to ask me, how do you reverse type two diabetes? My answer is very simple. Number one, cannot be on any blood glucose lowering medications right off the bat. No oral medications, no insulin. Okay. No zero pharmaceutical intervention in order to lower your blood glucose. Number two, an A1C of less than 5.7% for one year. So you need to be at 5.6, 5.6 or below 5.7 doesn't count 5.6 or below for one year continuous for one year continuously on zero blood glucose lowering medication. If you can do that, then you could technically claim that you have reversed prediabetes. Or type 2 um, diabetes for that matter. Or, or type 2 diabetes, thank you. Um, but anything less than that and what you're demonstrating is that, yes, you can do something that's going to lower your blood glucose and lower your A1C, but you have to demonstrate that you can do this over the course of time. And if you can let at least one year pass with an A1C that's south of 5.7% and you can maintain that and you can do it with zero pharmaceutical intervention, then that's what I would consider to be a reversal. And you would test that monthly or every three months or what? Every three months. So you got to get four tests. So four tests yep. throughout the year. A1C. Exactly. Yep. And But you're mm -hmm. saying so far to your knowledge, you don't know anybody who has done that on a ketogenic diet has shown those basically that criteria for diabetes reversal? So I, I don't know anybody personally that's done that. Um, or any research that's shown it? 
Yeah. So the research is actually, there's very little research that studies the effect of a ketogenic diet over the course of time. There are, there are definitely some papers, but there right. are not, um, there are not large numbers of paper, nor large numbers of papers, nor do those papers have a large number of people in them. And so if you take a look at the isolated handful of papers that demonstrate the effect of a ketogenic diet over a course of one year, two years, or five years, what you'll see is that there's a general reduction in blood glucose and a general reduction in insulin use. And that's okay. But the, but at the end of the one year period or two year period or five year period, the patients in this intervention groups are not meeting the criteria that I just told you. They're not south of 5.7% on their A1C and they are not free of oral glucose of, of, excuse me, glucose lowering medication. And so they're basically failing two of the tests that I think are absolutely required. And as a result of that, in my opinion, from a scientific perspective, claiming that they have reverse type two diabetes is just, uh, is, is, is inaccurate. Got it. So we've got kind of a criteria now. And I, I like that. I like having a high bar, high standard for criteria. If we're going to say, Hey, I reversed X disease. You know, what does that mean in cancer? Unfortunately today, the bar is incredibly low to say I'm a cancer survivor. So yeah, what is the definition? Yeah. So the definition of a cancer survivor is you, you were diagnosed with cancer on January 1st, year 2000. You're still alive January 2nd in 2005. So you have lived five years with cancer. Doesn't matter if you've destroyed your quality of life and this destroyed your immune system and caused three other autoimmune diseases in the process, but you have lived five years. So the big push in the medical conventional medical oncological community is, hey, let's improve cancer survivorship. Well, it sounds nice. And a lot of the nonprofits that are trying to raise money to find the cure and to improve, you know, and they say we've improved cancer survivorship, the five-year survival rate over the years, it's getting better. What people don't, and that sounds nice. And it sounds like a lofty, you know, a, a, a caring thing to do. And certainly we want people to live longer uh, with cancer. Uh, the problem is that they don't care at all what happens to your quality of life, to your health, to your immune system, your hair falling out, the radiation that destroys your body, the constant chronic pain that you're in. None of that matters when it comes to looking at your overall quality of life. So that's the problem. So I'm a cancer survivor. That's wonderful. I've lived past five years. If you die on day two after five years, you're still a cancer. This was a cancer survivor in our statistics. Look, we improved cancer survivorship by 25% with all these new drugs and radiation and chemotherapy. Look at this new drug. We just improved by you know 42% uh, the, the cancer survivorship uh, past five years. And that's, and that's how they do it. They don't at all share with you what else happened to that person, how they may have now become insulin resistant because they've continued living the way they were living. They now have type two diabetes. You know, the number one cause of death for somebody with cancer is not cancer. The number one cause of death for somebody with cancer is heart, uh, heart disease or heart attack, heart failure. So, which is when, ironic actually, because right? the number one cause of death for people living with diabetes is heart disease. Same thing. So when we're talking about, you know, what are these underlying causes and conditions of these chronic diseases, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they all have very similar, if not identical causes. And that's the thing is when we get to the root cause of these diseases, 
we can not only prevent these diseases from ever happening, but empower our bodies to heal from them. And I know many people who've done that. You know many people who've done that, both uh, you know, with diabetes and with cancer, as well as heart disease. So I think we need a, a higher uh, standard set, a higher bar. Uh, especially for right. cancer, you know, cancer survivorship. That's one thing now to say, yes, I cured cancer. You know, I reversed cancer. They basically, let's say you had a three millimeter tumor, for example, a three centimeter tumor, and they removed the tumor and they cleared the margins and they go back and do a PET scan or an MRI and there's no more tumor. They say, okay, you're cancer free. We have cured your cancer. And then they claim that for whatever drugs they used, whatever surgery they used, whatever radiation, we had a cancer cure over here. Now, the problem is, is um, cancer that comes back a second time or a third time, and very often cancer comes back with a vengeance. And it happens to so many people because they don't get to the underlying root cause of cancer. They don't realize that cancer is not some invading enemy I need to take out of me, but in fact, it is a biological dysfunction, primarily due to diet and lifestyle, that leads to uh, genetic mutations, DNA damage, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, and dying off to the point where the cell starts to ferment to stay alive. So there's not enough mitochondria left in the cell and they've been damaged, the DNA damaged, chronic inflammation through diet and lifestyle, through toxins, through chemicals, through carcinogens, through sedentarism, you name it. The cell starts to ferment as a survival mechanism. This is my theory that I have actually ran by some of the top researchers and scientists in cancer today, and they agree with this. Uh, they, some of them have told me they haven't exactly thought about it that way, but before, but now that I said it to them, they say, absolutely, I agree with that. That, that. that makes perfect sense. Where What I see cancer is, it is your body, your cell trying to survive to keep you alive. And we know that our bodies are doing everything they can to survive, to keep us alive, right? All the time, our, our bodies are regenerating, you know, apoptosis is healthy cell death. It's, it's the cells dying when they need to, so they don't become cancerous, so that our body can generate new cells and replace old cells. Autophagy is the process where our body is cleaning up cellular waste and recycling it. You know, if you are out in a, an experience in life where it's life or death situation, your, your, your intuition, your, your inclination is to survive. You see a child, you know, in a car and you, see, you hear stories of a mother literally lifting up a car to save the child. It's like her body was designed, her mind, emotions, body, neurochemicals were literally designed to save that child. We can do miraculous things through, you know, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight or even freeze, fight, flight or freeze to keep us alive. And so I look at cells, cancer cells, is it just wants to stay alive, but through the chronic fermentation process, because of the damage, it's very inefficient and uses tremendous amounts of glucose to replicate. 
And this is where things get kind of confusing and tricky and people are confused about this because they kind of group all glucose into one bucket. And they say glucose from studies with high fructose corn syrup, highly processed glucose, is the same as glucose from eating a banana. It's the same thing. All glucose is bad for you. Just like you were told with diabetes, all carbohydrates which have glucose are bad for you. People are told with cancer, avoid all glucose because it's all bad for you. When in fact, a tremendous amount of research shows that glucose in foods like fruits and vegetables and berries and healthy carbohydrates, real food, legumes, soy, beans, lentils, peas, that 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 glucose does not necessarily, even though cancer will eat that glucose, there are so many other benefits that you get from eating those foods that it actually helps to increase apoptosis in cancer cells. It helps to decrease angiogenesis, which is the vascular creation of new blood cells so that cancer can thrive. Uh, it helps to decrease inflammation and chronic inflammation is one of the underlying causes of cancer. So the, all these foods that people end up avoiding because they think they're going to make the cancer, you know, proliferate actually have the phytonutrients, the minerals, the vitamins, the anti-cancer properties um, that your body needs to help fight the cancer. So Absolutely. when you, it's like, I see it as throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You look at one molecule and say, this is the culprit, but you forgot about all the other aspects of that particular food that your body actually needs. Okay. So on that note, I love this topic because you just nailed it on the head. The way that I think about food, whole food that comes from the natural world is that all the food that we eat is a three-dimensional matrix. Okay. We're not eating isolated chemicals. We're not eating fructose and uh, medium chain triglyceride and casein. No, 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 no. We are eating a three-dimensional matrix of, of nutrients that all combines together into one thing that we refer to as a mango or thousands of uh, nutrients that combine together to be called a kidney bean. Okay. So the way that I look at it is that every whole food contains nine classes of nutrients, including carbohydrate, fat, protein, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. I'll say that again, carbohydrate, fat, protein. Those are the three macronutrients. And then in addition to that, we have micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And the combination of all of these nine classes of nutrients, which have thousands of different identities, combined together to create a banana or quinoa or uh, soybeans. It's very, every, the, the, the combinations of nutrients are different for every single food. They're different for every single part of the plant. It's different for the stock than it is for the bean, than it is for the pod. It's, it's different. But the point is that when you're putting, uh, when you're eating whole food, you have to take into account the fact that there's a complex combination of nutrients that all have different metabolic 
roles. Some of them are going to be utilized for energy. That's the carbohydrate, the fat, and the protein. You actually generate ATP from those molecules. The vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals do not generate ATP. They can't. They, instead, they are micronutrients that are used for disease fighting, uh, for their disease fighting properties. Uh, the um, phytochemicals in particular are a group of uh, nutrients that have very, very powerful anti-disease properties. And these types of chemicals can lower your blood pressure. They can lower your cholesterol. They can lower your, uh, your A1C value. They can lower your, uh, your blood glucose. They can stimulate your pancreas to secrete more insulin. Uh, they can significantly reduce inflammation inside of your liver and inside of your kidneys and inside of your vasculature and that right there. And some of them even have anti-tumor effects, right? So I a hundred percent agree with you when I, I get as frustrated as you do when people lump all things that contain glucose into one boat and throw the baby out with the bathwater and forget that along with glucose inside of a banana comes a whole bunch of other really powerful disease fighting material. So you've basically, you know, proven through your own personal life, I mean, 19 years of doing this, as well as through, you know, many other people through your, your mastering diabetes program that, you know, the high carbohydrate approach uh, works for diabetes. You can lower insulin usage, you can um, reduce uh, insulin resistance, you can increase insulin sensitivity, you can get off of insulin, right? Obviously, you know, I'm not saying you guarantee this for everybody all the time, but you've shown that it is duplicatable in many different people. Um, now, what about what happens when you eat a high fat diet, when you're on a high carbohydrate diet? Because isn't it true that if you eat a high, if you, if you add some large amounts of fat into your diet, let's say, let's say you're still on a plant-based diet, but you eat a bunch of nuts or seeds or some seed oils or something like that, which we're not recommending seed oils to anybody. But let's say you do that. Doesn't that increase your insulin need uh, when that happens? And so isn't that just the opposite of someone who's on a ketogenic diet that adds glucose in 75 grams of glucose and then their insulin uh, needs increase dramatically or explain that uh, to me because I'm actually really curious about that. Yeah, this is, this is a, this is a great subject of research because there's actually some uh, very powerful research that demonstrates exactly what you're talking about, which is suppose you're eating a, you know, low ish fat diet and then you eat one meal one meal that contains a significant amount of protein and or a significant amount of fat, what happens in the subsequent 12 hours to specifically glucose and insulin? Okay, and we're gonna come at it from the perspective of glucose and insulin because we're talking about diabetes and blood glucose control, okay? And this, this body of research demonstrates that one single meal can create a state of what's called uh, delayed onset postprandial hyperglycemia and delayed onset postprandial hyperinsulinemia. Long, long words. Delayed onset means for the first three hours of eating a meal that contains, let's, let's separate them. Let's do protein only. If you consume a, a single meal that contains more than 28 grams of protein, okay, what ends up happening is that for the first three hours, your blood glucose response is very normal. Both your blood glucose and insulin are uh, the, the response is 
very quote unquote normal and, you know, um, nothing is abnormal at the three hour marker is when your blood glucose will start to increase and continue to increase and continue to increase and continue to increase on a diagonal line moving upwards. So your glucose actually begins to elevate after the three hour marker, which is again, what it's called delayed onset postprandial, meaning after you eat hyperglycemia, which is high blood glucose. And then to compensate for that, your pancreas will then secrete more insulin to try and bring your blood glucose down. Or if you're injecting insulin, in the case of people with type one diabetes, your insulin requirements will start to increase and you're going to have to inject more insulin as your blood glucose is climbing in order to bring your blood glucose back down. So this body of research, I was actually just doing a whole review on this literature not too long ago. And what the researchers have found is that number one, uh, protein rich meals cause delayed onset postprandial hyperglycemia and uh, insulinemia. And number two, fat does the same thing. Uh, foods that are high in fat cause the same process. And number three, that when you add a meal that contains both protein and fat simultaneously, that the results are additive. And this is really powerful information because just like you were saying, it's kind of the opposite of what we were describing earlier, but the effect is so prominent and so measurable within such a short period of time that uh, multiple research groups have demonstrated the exact same effect uh, and they've replicated one another's results. And now this is considered a very you know, strong body of research um, that um, the type one community is starting to pay attention to because they're recognizing that you have to take into account more than just carbohydrate when figuring out how much insulin to inject for a given meal. So that those studies were done on a high carbohydrate diet or what were they eating? Uh, so those studies were done. You mean like what was the baseline diet yeah. of the individuals yep. before? Mm -hmm. the, yeah. So it was not, they were not eating a high carbohydrate diet um, prior. They were eating a, you know, quote unquote standard diet that contained a medium amount of carbohydrate energy with um, uh, a medium amount of fat and a medium amount of uh, protein. What they did was they increased the fat and protein, fat and or protein content for a single meal. And they were trying to determine what is the independent effect of an increase in fat and or protein intake at those meals in order to, to get a better picture of what's actually happening in the post-meal state. So, and so what, so you're on a high carbohydrate diet and the people mastering diabetes community, are high carbohydrate, low fat, low protein. Um, you're obviously, I mean, you're fit, you do CrossFit, you're building muscle. You, uh, don't seem to have any issues with building muscle on a low protein diet or do you? Uh, not at all, not at all, not at all. So, um, I used to think when I first started this process that uh, it was going to be very challenging for me to, uh, you know, grow muscle, gain muscle, gain, gain mass. And what I learned in a very short period of time is that what you eat matters, but how hard you work in the gym matters more. Mm. Right. So if you go to the gym and you are, uh, Performing exercise, which is not hypertrophic, doesn't induce hypertrophy, as you know, inside and out, okay? You're not going to be creating the stimulus for muscle tissue to grow. You're not going to be creating the stimulus for what's called net muscle protein synthesis after 
the workout is over. Okay. So good examples of that. You can go running on a treadmill. You can go do body weight resistance exercises. Like these are all good for you. Don't get me wrong, but they're not creating signals within your muscle that are literally neurological signals that signal up to your brain, make me bigger. And so only when you create that state of hypertrophy by lifting heavier amounts of weight or by performing specific types of exercises that increase the load on your musculature that then create this signalist neurological signaling inside of your brain to make your muscles larger, only then do you stand a chance of actually increasing your muscle mass, okay? So number one, you have to induce hypertrophy. Number two, when you have induced hypertrophy, the next question is, can you consume the right distribution of nutrients in order to help your muscle tissue now grow, okay? Can you consume enough carbohydrate can you consume enough fat? Can you consume enough protein and get the right quality of those nutrients in order for your muscle tissue to grow? So when you induce hypertrophy, yes, of course, your muscle tissue is going to require more amino acids. The amino acids come from protein and that's going to be required in order to stimulate net muscle protein synthesis after your workout. But in addition to that, your muscles are also going to require a significantly increased amount of glucose. And people always forget this. And people think, oh, all I need when I, when I eat a meal in a post-workout state is protein, protein, protein. And the answer is no, you definitely need protein, but you also require carbohydrate because the carbohydrate breaks down into glucose and the glucose actually goes to, uh, gets imported into your muscle tissue and stored as glycogen. And glycogen is a fuel tank that's used for short, uh, for, for uh, higher intensity, short duration movements. So you, you definitely need more amino acids from protein and you definitely need more glucose from carbohydrate. And the combination of the two of those is absolutely necessary. The third question to ask yourself is, well, if I'm eating a plant-based diet, can I get enough? Can I get enough glucose? And we had, you know, the answer to that is yes, because foods from the plant-based world tend to be high in carbohydrate. The question is number two, can I get enough protein? And the answer is absolutely. freaking lutely Okay. Absolutely. Now there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of questions in the world of exercise physiology as to how much protein do you really require? And the metric that a lot of people have been using, you and I've talked about this a thousand times offline, which is how many grams of protein are you eating per kilogram body weight? So it's a gram per kilogram calculation. And, uh, the, the recommendations are, I've seen as low as 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight and North of two grams per kilogram body weight. Okay. So what I have known, what I've, which is right. People who don't body, know people, people who don't know the kilogram, uh, it's 2.2 is the ratio to, well, that's to a pound, but basically it's, it's, it's roughly like a half a gram per pound of body weight to roughly one gram per pound of body weight. So to make it easy, if you're a hundred pound person, and this is not exact. I just, I round it down and up slightly so people can understand this very clearly. If you're a hundred pound person, it's roughly 50 grams of protein per day up to, you know, a hundred grams and sometimes more 1.2 grams, right? So 120 grams of protein per day, which is a lot. It's a lot of protein to try and consume in one day, uh, which you would have to be you wouldn't have to be on a ketogenic diet, but you just have to get, um, actually not at all. I can get, I can get a 1.2, uh, on a plant-based diet, I can get a 1.2 gram per pound in a day. I just don't like to get that much protein. I don't think I need it. I think it's a little excessive. Um, you know, and my athletic goals are, you know, getting stronger, 
you know, building more muscle, being a stronger Olympic weightlifter, stronger CrossFit, et cetera. So I generally mm -hmm. lean towards more protein. Um, and if I'm mindful about it, I can get it, you know, it's actually not that hard. I thought it was really hard at first. Then I was like, oh, it's actually pretty easy. Um, so, so, so you tell me, let's do a quick calculation on you. How, how much do you weigh? Uh, right now I am, I've just been on a weight gaining diet since May. Uh, and I've added 13 pounds in six months, seven months. So right now I'm at 210, 210 pounds, 90, roughly like 96 pounds. kilos, I think. So 210 pounds of pure steel, pure steel, baby. I got a little, you know, when you add that much weight that fast, you got a little, little, uh, a couple of little love handles, but it's all good. It's, it's, it's hey. a long, it's a long-term gain. I ain't in it for the short term. That's right. As long as you can lift heavy objects, it's okay. If there's a little bit of a punch <laughs> that comes along with it. It's good stuff. So it's fun. So you're 210 pounds and you're saying that on average per day, you eat how many grams per pound? Of so I don't track all the time. Once in a while, I will track macros for a few weeks at a time. Uh, this recent one, I because of the weight gaining, I had to track and I tracked for like three or four months to get an idea. Mm -hmm. And that um, I was doing about a gram per day. Uh, I mean, a gram per pound. So I was, I was doing, I was trying to get about 200 grams of protein per day at around, you know, cause I weighed like 200 pounds, 197 when I started. Now I think I average, like I said, I just track once in a while to kind of see where I'm at with my meals and stuff. I probably average on the low end. Some days I might get as low as like 130 grams. Um, some days I'll get up to 200 grams. Okay. So this is actually really important because on a, on a bad day for you, on a low day, you're eating 130 grams, even though yep. you weigh 210 pounds. So basically let's do the calculation on that 130. But, but you got to remember I'm eating to gain weight for me. Like I, you would call me a hard gainer, I guess. I, I have to eat like 4,500 calories or more per day to gain weight slowly because Correct. of how physically active I am, how high my metabolism is, how much I sauna, ice bath, do all these things. So like, that's not even that much of a percent, but go ahead, do the math you're going to do. Yeah. Okay. This is great actually. So you're basically 130 grams divided by 210. So like on a bad day, you're basically eating 0.62 grams per pound. Yep. Body weight. Okay. 0.62 grams per pound. Okay. On a good day for me. Okay. Um, I would eat, so I weigh 165 pounds and on a good day, I will eat 110 grams of protein. I'm at 0.66 on, on a very good day. On your and high day, my, on a high, high protein day for you. On a high protein day. Exactly. And usually my protein intake is lower than that. So usually I'm eating somewhere on the order of about 90 grams of protein per day. So I'm like at a 0.54. So yeah. And you're, I mean, your you're, question, you're really lean. Uh, you're, you're, you're probably last time I saw you 7% body fat, maybe 6%, 5%, 4%, 3%. Holy shit. That, that's yeah, really ridiculous. That's, that's it's super ridiculous. low. I mean, that's why your abs are popping. Like <laughs> I'm probably closer to like 15% right now, 14% once I went on this, uh, this weight gaining diet, but, um, but it'll, it'll eventually convert to muscle. It takes quite a while for fat to convert to muscle when you're bulking and when you're, when you're gaining, but so you're super lean, you've got mm -hmm. just, I mean, incredible, you know, um, uh, musculoskeletal muscle 
And I guess the question would be, could you, could you add 20 pounds to your frame of pure muscle and, and be very strong with that? You know, could somebody and your could you get up to like 200 pounds while still on that low of protein? I guess that'd be the question. Okay. On, on that low. Of protein, and I'd be curious. Is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is, obviously it would take no. years to add 30 pounds of pure muscle. It would take years of hard work. Yeah, uh, I'm just curious if you could do it at that low of a percentage of protein, you know, I don't know. I don't so know it's a good question. Uh, as far as percentage of protein, I think the answer is no. I think I would definitely have to increase the percentage of protein in my diet. So, you know, right now, if I'm hovering around like a 0.55 grams per pound, I'd probably have to increase it north of like 0.8. But that would be the first change that I would make. Number and two, what, what percentage would that? Calorie uh-huh, go ahead. I'd have to eat, I'd have to eat more calories per day. story. So you're, you're eating 4,500 gram calories per day. I'm eating 3,200 calories per day. I'm also only 165 pounds. So literally there's a 40 pound difference between the two of us. And that means you have to eat more calories than I do. Yep. Right. So point being is that I would have to probably increase my calorie intake from 3,200 calories per day to probably north of 4,000 calories per day, just like you more calories, higher proportion of my diet as protein. No question. And one of the things that Mark Hellerstein taught me back in the day is that when you gain weight, there's no such thing as gaining weight and gaining 100% muscle. It's impossible. Biologically, right. you can't do it. Right. So what you, what's going to happen is that when you gain weight, you're likely, if, you, if you're doing it from you know, exercise-related activities, you're likely going to gain two-thirds of that in muscle and one-third of that in fat. And there's some so water weight in there. There's some water weight in there as well because your muscle stores more water and so forth. So yeah, it's like water, fat, muscle. But two-thirds, you're saying two-thirds muscle, one-third fat. Yeah, so somewhere along those proportions. So, right, we're looking at like, uh, you know, fat and basically non-fat tissue um, and then water, of course. So let's just call it, you know, 60% of my weight gain would be due to muscle, right? And then the, the remainder would either be fat or water. So the point being is that if I were to put on, you know, 20 pounds, then I'd only be putting on approximately 12 pounds of muscle, right? So- it's doable. It's doable to answer your question. The answer is, yeah, the, from a mathematical perspective, we can make it work. It's going to take time. It's going to take calories. It's going to take a lot of protein, but I could certainly get there. But here's the thing that I have to take into consideration is that, like we talked about earlier, eating more protein increases insulin requirements. Yep. And, and eating more fat okay. too, right? And eating more fat too. Exactly. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, but I have to be very aware of that. Because in the process of gaining weight and in the process of adding more muscle mass, I also want to be controlling my blood glucose with precision. And so if I'm going to do that, then I'm going to have to increase my, the amount of insulin I'm injecting at mealtime. I'm going to have to increase the amount of basal insulin I have in the background. And as long as I do it systematically and slowly and control my blood glucose at all times, then there really should be no problem. So when right now, when you eat, if you add in you know, a bunch of fat into a meal, you're going to see your insulin requirements pretty much skyrocket after three hours, right? Because you're at a roughly, not 80, 10. Are you at roughly, you're still roughly around 80, 10, 10. I'm still at about 80, 10, 10. Correct. Mm -hmm. So you have 10% fat, you have some fat, you have, what are, what are the fats that you're eating uh, on a day-to-day basis or where, I mean, you know, a lot of beans have a little bit of fat, you know, a lot of the foods you're eating have fat in them already, but yeah. What are your Correct. healthy sources of fat that you're getting? 
Yeah. So most of the fat that I consume generally comes from legumes. So I tend to be a chickpea freak. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I eat a decent amount of chickpeas. I also eat pinto beans, kidney beans, you name it. Um, And so a decent amount of fat is coming from those bad boys. Again, when I say a decent amount, I mean, most of the fat that I'm consuming comes from there. Um, The rest of the food that I eat literally comes from potatoes and fruits and non-starchy vegetables. And they all have some fat, but they don't really have that much. And so the combination of those foods ends up keeping my total fat intake low. I don't really eat that many nuts and seeds. I'll have some every so often, no problem. I'll have some oatmeal every once in a while. Oatmeal tends to have a decent amount of fat in it. Uh, I don't really eat avocados that much. I don't really like avocados. I'm not eating coconuts. I'm not doing any oil. And so, you know, I am definitely very low on my total fat intake and uh, 10% is a, you know, a good estimation for how much I'm getting on a daily basis. Now, what about like someone like Paul Saladino, who you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. uh, who promotes the, well, he started out promoting the carnivore diet. Yeah. And over time, he eventually realized he made some mistakes and realized that carbohydrates from fruit from honey, from berries are actually very healthy for you. What you have learned and have been talking about for years, what I have learned and been talking about for years, these carbohydrates are not bad for you. In fact, they are incredibly healthy for you and you need them. So while he drove who who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people down the path of carnivore, he now calls himself more animal-based, which is um, he still eats a lot of meat, um, butter, or yeah, butter and um, bone marrow, organs. You know, he, he claims that a, a diet high in animal fat and animal protein combined with carbohydrates. I think he does about 100, last time I heard 120 grams of carbohydrates a day, mostly through honey and fruit and things like that. Papaya, and I think he's still in Costa Rica. It's time Papaya, mangoes, recording and this. honey. Yeah. Papaya, mangoes, and honey, which I love as well. I love... Papayas, mango, and honey. Eh, papayas, I like. I wouldn't say I love them, but I love mangoes. I love honey. These things are very healthy for you. But he's still um, leaning more towards the ketogenic side, I would say, because he's getting a much larger percentage of his macros from fat and protein. He claims that because he's eating these pasture-raised, grass-fed, and a lot of people uh, are claiming this as well, because it's pasture-raised, it's grass-fed, um, it's not processed and pumped with hormones that this is the way we're supposed to eat. You know, the paleolithic period, the paleo diet, that this is the way we're supposed to eat. We're supposed to eat a high protein, high fat with some carbohydrates, but it's the, the reason that he claims he's so healthy and other people are healthy following his methods now is because of the, the closer to nature approach, which I agree with everything. The closer we can get to nature, the better, the less processed, the less seed oils, the the less packaged foods, the more whole foods, the more real foods, the more organically grown foods. All these things we're very much in alignment with. I'm very much in alignment with those philosophies of him. Um, the thing that I don't quite believe yet and haven't been convinced of yet is the high animal product, even if it's pasture raised, even if it's grass fed, even if it's organic, et cetera, that that is the healthier way to go. And so I, but I'm open to it and I'm looking for the research and I follow him because I don't want to be closed minded about these things. I want to understand. I think he's a smart guy 
and I want to understand where he's coming from. I have done some videos basically, uh, you know, where he has come out and completely lied about things. And so I've done some videos on that and said, Hey, these things are lies, whether, you know, maybe he did it intentionally, maybe he didn't, um, where he was saying plants don't have certain nutrients that animal products do, and they don't have these, 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 and these. And so I did a video that said, actually, in fact, here's the plants that do have these nutrients. Here's these, here's the amino acids that create them in our body, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there is some some questions there in what he really knows and, and what he's talking about. But like I said, I think he's a smart guy. I haven't had a chance to meet him or talk with him. But I want to know what your thoughts are on that carnivore or let's say more. Let's forget carnivore for a moment because that basically fits in with ketogenic for the most part. Let's talk about his approach, which is the animal-based approach with the carbohydrates added in. And let's talk about this specifically for diabetes because he says that does not cause diabetes and that can actually heal diabetes. I believe he said that. Okay. I mean, I have a lot to say about Saladino. Um, I actually did a, a debate with him because we both released our book on the exact same day, February 18th. I watched it. Anybody who hasn't watched it needs to go watch it. Like, I, <laughs> dude, you, the brilliance that you have with biology and physiology, and I'm like, I had no idea like how unbelievably intelligent and well-versed you are in biology at such a profound level i'm like i don't understand half of what he's saying but it's incredible <laughs> it's, it's funny i i appreciate you saying that because after the interview i was just like man like i i felt like i didn't do a good job so hearing you say that actually makes me feel better but there was i remember walking away from that interview thinking to myself wow like there's a lot of there. It felt to me like there was a lot of manipulation happening inside mm. of that that conversation. And the manipulation is something that I think uh, may or may not be conscious, but I do believe that people who are very intelligent, Paul Sardino is a ridiculously intelligent human being, ridiculously intelligent, almost so intelligent that he knows how to manipulate situations to his advantage. And so he manipulates conversations to his advantages to his advantage. He manipulates the display of information to his advantage, and he's a master of taking complex arguments. He does the exact opposite of what we do all the time. We are talking about don't focus on one particular nutrient, zoom out and take a look at the whole food. He does the exact opposite and he zooms in and he says, where are you getting your carnitine from? Where are you getting your new 5GC from? Right? And you're, he focuses on isolated nutrients and makes you believe that if you don't get those nutrients in abundance, then you are missing out and you're gonna, it's gonna lead to some kind of nutrient deficiency down the road. And then that's gonna cause a metabolic disease, right? So it's, I think it's a form of manipulation of information and that's just like my own personal opinion. Now, I have seen the same story unfold over and over and over and over and over again in the influencer world. I'm gonna put him into the role of influencer because that's what he is. He's also a doctor, but, um, there are lots of influencers on social media that start out with a very specific methodology and they say, I am 100% carnivore or I am 100% paleo. And I, this is exactly what I do. And this is why I do it. And then over the course of a year or two years or three years, all of a sudden their philosophy changes. All of a sudden they start to integrate more plant-based foods into their diet. And all of a sudden they come up with these reasons for, it. well, well, the reason I'm putting this in is because berries are actually very low glycemic and low glycemic carbohydrates are very important for your brain function and yada, yada, yada. And they, they invent these reasons to start putting in the very foods that we're talking about and we've been talking about from the get-go. So you see a lot of these people who start out very heavily animal focused and they become 
more plant focused over the course of time. And they evolve towards a place where they're not as animal focused and they, they integrate more papayas and bananas and honey and berries and mangoes into their diet. I mean, I literally saw a video with Paul Saladino holding a spear inside of his kitchen. He's like, this is how a real man eats. And he was pointing at red meat and white meat and burgers and testicles. And then, uh, you know, many different types of meat that he was eating on a daily basis. I'm talking pounds of meat. And then he got to his fruit section. He says, I have one or two papayas a day. I have three mangoes a day. I have a little bit of honey per day. And I was like, that is new. You never used to do that. And you used to talk ill about people like me and you who have advocated that from the get-go. So something is changing inside of your head. Something's changing inside of your story. And that is suspect to me. Now, I would counter that. And I would say, if you take a look at a wide variety of people who come from the plant-based world, yourself included, me included, Dr. Furman included, the Shares Eyes, Dr. Ornish, Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Alan Goldhammer, Ocean Robbins, you know, like the people who are really advocating on behalf of a plant-based diet. What are the chances that this group of individuals, any one of those people that I just mentioned or any of the other advocates are going to do the exact opposite and increase their intake of meat or organ meat or dairy products over the course of time? What are the chances that five years into the future, we take a look at Dean Ornish and he's now eating meat? Give me, give me a percentage chance that, that happens. Yeah. If I were to take a guess, knowing Dean, having interviewed him, read his books because of the research he's done in literally reversing heart disease and other chronic diseases on a plant-based diet and healthy di lifestyle changes. I think the, you know, I would never say 0% because I don't know. I would say a 1% to 5% chance. I think it yeah. would be 0%, but you know, I can never claim anything to be 100% or 0% one way or the other. Um, but it would be small. It would be very, very small. Exactly right. And, and I would agree with you, right? I'm speculating here. I'm 100% speculating, but I think the chances of me integrating meat and or dairy products into my diet sometime in the next five years is as close to zero as possible. I think for you, the chances of you integrating meat and or dairy products into your diet is as well, I grew, I grew up on meat and potatoes, right? I grew up hunting and fishing in Montana. I mean, I grew up with that. It's you need milk, drink milk, you need meat, you need, you know, we shoot our own deer and we'd catch our own fish. And, you know, we did that uh, a few times as a teenager. And so, you know, I grew up with the same thing most people do is you need meat and you need milk to be healthy. Um, but when I was very unhealthy, at uh from 18 19 20 very sick and started learning about health watching some documentaries started experimenting with cleansing and fasting at like 20 years old 21 years old started experimenting with you know adding more whole foods and plant foods and then continued researching and learning more i eventually got to the point where was like i just red meat is not an okay thing for me to eat i started learning about sustainability and how these factory farms were just terrible for, for, for the animals, for the planet, for the environment, right? They're just feeding them so much corn and GMO corn and, and uh, you know, thousands of cows together in one little spot and just seeing all that. And, and then the health ramifications, I was like, okay, I need to stop red meat. And then from red meat, I think it was a month or two. It was like, all right, you know what? I'm just, I'm feeling better eating more plants and beans and things like that. It was like, I, I'm going to, 
I'm going to stop chicken as well. And so I eventually stopped eating chicken. Last thing I was still eating was some fish and some sushi. And uh, eventually I got to the point where I think I went out and had sushi one night and I just got really sick. And I'd been like right. cleaning out my body a lot uh, with cleansing and eating more whole plant foods. And so that was the last time I said, you know what? That's the last straw. I'm done with all animal products. I had already stopped dairy before that because even Paul Saladino and any real health expert today, for the most part, says dairy is not good for you. But I think he does promote like raw milk now. Um, I mean, if you look at all the studies on casein protein from milk, and if you look at you know, the milk that's purchased today. I mean, we're not gonna go down that rabbit hole that maybe we do that in another conversation, you know, the different types of milk and is, is it cooked, is it homogenized, is it processed or is it raw, is it from a goat? The studies I've seen, doesn't matter if it's cow's milk or goat's milk, you know, what's happening is it's increasing IGF-1 um, and it can cause a whole host of, of problems. So, you know, I already cut out dairy. So then by that point, it was like, all right, we're eating a totally plant-based diet. And then that's when we found raw food, went down the raw food path. But it was primarily for health reasons initially, because I just kept feeling better and better and better and learning more and researching more and meeting, talking to doctors and people healing diseases. And I went down that deep rabbit hole. And it's like, when I learn something, I experiment with myself. I'm like my own laboratory, right? Correct. Um, and then I learn more and then I reinforce it and I experiment with new things. So- so I got to that point now where it's like I've been on a completely plant-based diet. I've had a few eggs here and there over the last 12 years uh, mm. when we raised our own chickens and stuff like that. But I have not had milk, dairy, or any kind of meat, fish, chicken, beef, pork, any kind of meat in since 2000 and probably since my daughter was born. So it would have been 2010, I think, was the last time I had any animal product other than a few eggs here and there over the years. I've been off eggs for like the last three or four years, I think, because last time I ate one, I was just like, ugh, it just tasted disgusting. I just didn't want it anymore. So I was like, I sure. don't need that. But the odds of me, you know, adding in animal products into my diet again are, are slim to none because I feel amazing. I'm getting stronger every single year. I have tons of energy. I feel great. Digestive issues have healed. Um, you know, I just, it's like, why, why would I, I don't need it. There's nothing about it that intrigues me. Um, and in fact, I've developed kind of a compassion and love for animals. So I'm like, why would I have animals killed so I can eat them when I can get all the nutrients I need from plants? Like I just, for me, like, I don't care if people eat meat. I don't care if people eat animals. I don't like, it doesn't bother me. I don't judge them. They can eat whatever they want, but what I do for myself and what I learn, I obviously want to share it with others who are you know, not, they don't have health for themselves if they're struggling with what they're currently doing and they're looking for a path or an approach for health and healing and vitality and energy, then I say, hey, try this, you know, see if this works for you because it's worked for me and it's worked for literally thousands and thousands and thousands of other people. Yeah, exactly. So you just proved my point exactly, which is that the chances of, of uh, many of the advocates in the plant-based world, like yourself, myself, and beyond, integrating more animal foods into our diets in the future is way, 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 way lower than the chances of the people from the ketogenic community or the carnivore community integrating more plants into their diet. The chances of them integrating more plants into their diet over the course of time is much, much higher. 
And the reason for that is that I think that these individuals, they evolve over the course of time into recognizing the true value of eating whole foods. And a lot of them actually experience their own health related issues that come along with the ride when you are eating effectively zero plant material. And that can affect any number of organs. It can affect your brain. It can affect your colon. It can affect your liver. It can affect your kidney. And they undergo some combination of metabolic problems. And then they evolve towards a diet that incorporates more plant material. Right. And so another thing, if we go way, way, way back to the beginning of this conversation, you, you talked about the fact that, you know, when you were going through your own personal transformation, you had this idea that like, these people are liars, right? Like, I don't, I don't believe my parents. I don't believe the dare education, the drug abuse resistance education, because they're telling me that drugs are bad for me. And when I smoke one hit of weed, or if I have a little bit of alcohol, I feel great. You guys don't know what you're talking about, right? The same psychology happens in this world mm -hmm. of nutrition. The same psychology is at play with Saladino, okay? He made a post on Instagram a couple of years ago that he took down very quickly. And the post literally demonstrated that he just got his lipid panel back and his LDL cholesterol was through the roof. I don't even remember what the number was, but his LDL cholesterol was extremely high. And his, what he wrote on the post was, uh, I don't have heart disease. I am okay. I am safe. And even though my LDL cholesterol is high from a clinical perspective, because I don't have heart disease, I'm safe the clinical world is lying to you, right? That was his conclusion. Like these people are liars. They should rewrite the standards for what is considered a high cholesterol value, right? And I think he got a lot of hate from that. And he ended up taking that post down so it no longer exists on the internet. But the point here is that even he has claimed and demonstrated to the world that his biomarkers are not within the accepted range that the American uh, College of Cardiology has created. His A1C value, I don't even know what it was, but I would not be surprised if it was elevated. Um, and I'm sure that there's a number of biomarkers that could be out of whack in his particular situation or in the situation of many other influencers in this carnivore world. And um, it's those elevated biomarkers that translate into health concerns that then translate into them changing their philosophy and moving towards our philosophy. But people like us, we feel like we have the right answer, right? We feel like we've stumbled ac across the correct answer and the correct, it, it may not be 100% correct for every single human being, but it is pretty darn correct. And as a result of that, we don't waver. I don't need to waver. You don't need to waver. Dr. Michael Greger doesn't need to waver. Furman doesn't need to waver. None of us waver because we have a very, very, very good answer to short-term and long-term metabolic health. So to his, to his defense, I, I don't know if this is true, but I've seen posted that his A1C was like 4.8 or something. I have not verified that. Um, but he's saying it's very low and this was within the last couple of years. So I don't know what it would be today. And like I said, I don't know if that's accurate. Also to his defense, he, has gone on since that Instagram post you talked about and has uh, theorized and, and used science to, to try and back up his theory that LDL cholesterol doesn't matter as much as we've been led to believe. 
So again, I don't know how accurate that is. I have not dug deep into that. He does seem to believe that LDL only, I believe this is accurate, correct? I don't know if you know or not, that LDL only matters if you are metabolically unhealthy. I believe that's what he says. If you're metabolic, um, yeah, yeah, if if your metabolic uh, measurements are uh, unhealthy, then that's when LDL matters. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I I believe that's that's what he said. It's a good opinion, but it's it's fundamentally incorrect from a biological perspective. But go ahead. Yeah, that's that's all I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So it's like, you know, in the same way that we were talking earlier about, you know, some scientists, you know, inventing what's the reversal criteria for type 2 diabetes and literally just inventing their own science. And then, you know, individuals like him who are saying, you know, um, we need to redo the criteria for LDL um, and inventing their own branch of science. it, it doesn't really hold up. I mean, I've actually read the, the articles on LDL cholesterol and there are meta-analyses that have uh, studied more than 1 million participants. That's a lot of people over the course of time, more than 1 million. And they have shown without a shadow of a doubt that um, the higher you, there, there is a central role for LDL particles in the initiation of heart disease. The more LDL you have in your blood, the higher concentration in your blood, the higher your risk for heart disease, period, end of story. There's no refuting this in any way, shape, or form, right? There's a lot of genetic variation from individual to individual, but in general, the more LDL that's present inside of your blood, the higher your risk for heart disease. And then there's also the, what's called the Hegstead equation, which is from, uh, you know, the early 1960s, which, uh, you know, scientist, um, Dr. Hegstead, he demonstrated that uh, the more saturated fat you eat, the higher your cholesterol value goes. And he actually developed a mathematical equation that says, if you eat this much uh, triglyceride and sorry, this much saturated fat, then I can predict that your cholesterol level will go up by this much. And to this day, nobody can refute the Hegstead equation. Okay. It has not been refuted and it's been over 50 years since he invented it. So mm. for somebody to come out and say, oh, you know, LDL does not cause heart disease. The answer is thank you for your opinion. That is not scientifically accurate. Interesting. Well, brother, we've been uh, we've been at it for over a couple hours now. Uh, we're just getting started. Let's we're go. just getting started, we're man. We're gonna have we're gonna have to do a part two for sure. For uh, sure, for sure. We could talk about this at some point in the near future. Uh, Absolutely. Your book, Mastering Diabetes. Your coaching program. People get in touch with you. Your team. You know what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, just go to masteringdiabetes.org. It's just that simple. Go to masteringdiabetes.org. That is the gateway to learning about anything that you want. We have a coaching program where if you're living with any form of diabetes, we can help you uh, reverse insulin resistance and get away from you know increased pharmaceutical medication. We can help you attain your ideal body weight permanently. We can help you get rid of, uh, you know lower your A1C, lower your blood pressure, lower your cholesterol, period, end of story. We, we've demonstrated a thousand times over. And um, there are some very, very exciting improvements that are happening for us as a business that I... I'm not allowed to talk about right now, but um, one day I will be able to talk about them. But point being is if you want to get involved in um, a coaching program, then that's the place to start. If you also like reading books, just go to Amazon, type in Mastering Diabetes and pick up the book. Um, It became a New York Times bestseller back in 2020. It has over 800 scientific references. It's got meal plans. It's got recipes. It's got all the information you ever wanted to know. And, uh, you know, I'd love for you to read it and leave us a review. Even if you hate the book, leave us a crappy review. It's totally fine. I just want to know what you heard. That's all. Or I want to know what you felt. (laughs) That's awesome. All right, brother. I appreciate you so much, man. This was epic. Thank you, dude. Thank you, my man. All right. Take care.
Thanks for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. If you found value in today's podcast, please share it with others. Subscribe to catch future episodes and leave a rating and a review. For more information or to connect with Nathan, check him out online at www.nathancrane.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube at Nathan Crane. Until next time, this has been the Nathan Crane Podcast.